And good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening, whatever the case may be, wherever you are on this rotating globe. Welcome to another edition, a very special edition tonight in the wee hours of the morning here in the land of enchantment of the other side of midnight. Well, tonight is finally, finally, finally the night that it has come. Well, almost, we're just a, a few hours away. But as you know, a few days ago, the Artemis One unmanned test flight of the successor to the Apollo program, the Apollo capsule being replaced by the Orion spacecraft. I hope that is not lost on everyone, how incredibly, I mean, incredibly ironic and transparent and Emily Dickinson it was of NASA to name the new Artemis spacecraft. Orion, is on its way to the moon. And uh, sometime uh, in the next, uh, I think it was this afternoon, I think if I remember back to some of the the nuggets from the last uh, press conference that they they held, because there are no people riding inside Orion. It's an unmanned test flight. They have not, uh, they being NASA, have not held the daily press briefings that I'm used to back in the heyday of Apollo. So the last one was at, uh, at late afternoon on, on Friday. So I'm trying to remember back what they said. But I think this afternoon we passed that invisible line between Earth and Moon where we entered the region of the Moon's influence or in technical terminology, it's a hill sphere. Uh, every planet with gravity has a hill sphere, meaning the point at which the gravity of the object that is uh, affecting you is less than the gravity of the stuff outside that sphere or spherical region around the gravitating object. So in plain essence, the spacecraft traveling just a few thousand miles per hour from a high of over 20 2,000 miles per hour, and some of you sharper celestial mechanics experts out there will say, wait a minute, the escape velocity of Earth is 25,000 miles per hour. How come it was only moving at 22? Well, that explains why instead of three days, as we did during Apollo to get from launch uh, into lunar orbit, it's taken almost a week. It'll be six days. Um, just shy of six days. The reason is they programmed this mission to move slower. Why? Because it uses less fuel. Why? Because Artemis, even in terms of this uh, new rocket, the SLS, the Space Launch System, the successor to the incredible Saturn V, it does not have the power, really, of the Saturn V. It's an inferior rocket, even though NASA keeps saying the most powerful. Ro-. No, it's not. You know, the Saturn V beat it by, by 90 yards. What makes it different is by tweaking trajectories and adjusting for velocities and all that, you can squeak by with interim upper stages and all that until the Block 1B, Block 1C, Block 2 later versions of the SLS come online, and that will happen in the next couple, three years. So the SLS could barely get this spacecraft, this Orion uh, spacecraft, uh, European 
service module combination uh, to the moon. And one way they did it was by basically just creeping over the boundary of the distance between Earth, Moon's gravity and, and the Earth uh, spacecraft gravity and the Moon's spacecraft gravity. And that happened uh, this afternoon. So now we are falling toward the Moon. We, I mean the Orion spacecraft, going faster and faster, accelerating. And something like, if I remember the numbers correctly, at 7.33 tomorrow morning, East Coast time, they will fire the engine, the uh, Ohm's engine, on the service module, the 6,000-pound thrust engine, uh, and burn for, I think it's something like 18 minutes, to basically slow down and be captured in lunar orbit. And then they will fire in the forward direction to accelerate, whip around the moon, and enter that very long, very uh, steep uphill climb to about 39,000 miles away from the lunar surface um, in this long, week-long orbit. 39,000 miles, that's twice 19.5. This mission is loaded with NASA's traditional symbolism. And we'll get all into all that when we go through the program. We've got a very interesting panel of guests, many who are kind of uh, hanging around. They've been hanging around all day, Waiting to come back on the air. To, no, I'm just kidding. No, no, no. They've all gone and done their things today, and they've all reconvened. We've got Barbara Honiger and Keith Morgan and Robert Morningstar and um, Andrew Curry. Um, and Georgia is joining us in the third hour because on Sunday night she uh, teaches classes, and they're not over until the fat lady sings. No, that's, that's another cliche. Anyway, she'll be able to join us in the third hour to provide some very intriguing perspective. And there's a story that I will probably uh, want to share when she's with us that is kind of interesting and is kind of a commentary that really belonged in last night's show, but since they're connected, you know, it will work as well tonight. Anyway, so we are we are hours away from this uh, outward-powered uh, acceleration rocket burn of the... Um, uh, Ohm's engine on the service module of the Orion spacecraft, which will take it out into this long 39,000 mile uh, long orbit. And then they will come back down, do another powered uh, maneuver, which will slingshot them back en route to Earth. They'll spend almost a week traveling from Earth to Moon, and they will splash down off San Diego uh, like uh, in, in two weeks. So, but during these two closest approaches to the moon, and actually the other times, but really the opportunity in these two closest approaches to the moon, within something like uh, 60 nautical miles, which is um, a little bit more in statute miles, they will have stunning views with the onboard high-definition digital television camera system, which will be taking incredibly high resolution video images movies you know film motion pictures whatever of everything going on with a technology that the apollo folks could only dream about because it hadn't been invented yet and would not be invented literally for decades until after apollo so what you're going to see 
And unfortunately, because of the way the celestial mechanics work, this maneuver, this powered burn, takes place behind the moon as seen from Earth. So what they're going to do is they're going to record everything on board, because it's just digital data. And then when they come around the uh, right side of the moon, come over the hill, as the term uh, is, is uh, used, they will begin to downlink at whatever megabytes per second are required to send uh, a lot of incredibly intriguing video to Earth quickly so they can be sent out by NASA all over the world. And again, we're going to get into the details of this during our conversation, because as I was sharing with some of our folks before we went on air, NASA revealed something very, very interesting about this process that they did not have to reveal. And given that NASA stands for never a straight answer, and the fact that they didn't have to talk about this, but they did in a very Emily Dickinsonian fashion, um, I'm going to kind of walk through with our with our panelists tonight what this could mean in terms of people who are avidly looking to see what is going to be on this incredible live HD color television video that's not quite live because it's going to be recorded and then played back just a few minutes later. The question, of course, before the house is, is all of it going to be played back? Okay, moving on. Uh, I, that's item number one in my uh, section of radio with pictures. For you folks that are kind of over here from uh, hearing me on, on George last Monday night, what you want to do, if you're on the other side of midnight.com, you want to click on uh, that uh, banner, which says very prominently, Return to the Moon Live with the EM team, Artemis One. Click on that. That will take you to the guest. And uh, on the guest page, you will see... Uh, right under it where it says fast link to items click on my name that takes you down to the section of the page we call radio pictures which contains various items we're going to be referring to during the show number one is the status the artemis blog the status of the uh, mission as of uh, uh, this afternoon and as i said i think in that headline you'll see that we have passed into the moon's sphere of influence Item number two, 1A, right under it, is the everything you wanted to know about Artemis but didn't know who to ask. It's in this Artemis reference guide. That's a PDF. It's got all kinds of little subsections and uh, nuggets of information and little gems and all that. So click on that, and it you know it, it's categorized according to uh, uh, sections and and uh, subjects like spacecraft or moon or propellants or power supplies or communications or you know live television schedules etc so it's all there item number two formerly number two is a an oldie but a goodie this is the apollo news reference that nasa and the grumman aerospace corporation put together uh around the apollo missions which are now like 50 years in the rear view mirror. And the reason this is important is because item number three, if you look carefully at the table of contents, when you click on item number two, um, you'll see that what NASA did is they collaborated with the two major contractors for the Apollo spacecraft combination, the command module, which took astronauts to lunar orbit, the lunar module that took two of the astronauts down to the surface, 
and brought them back up where they rendezvoused with the command module, which then brought them home. So it was the Grumman Aerospace Corporation that created and designed and produced and manufactured and tested the lunar module. It was the uh, North American Rockwell Corporation in Downey, California, which created and produced and uh, tested and sent to the moon the Apollo Command Service Modules. And each major corporation had the collaboration with NASA to create their own voluminous, incredibly detailed press kits. So I put that up there so you can kind of compare the level of detail that we were fed during Apollo as members of the fourth estate versus what NASA is now telling the world, the American people, the press, the media, television networks, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, etc., cetera, uh, about Artemis. And you'll notice if you're interested in this kind of stuff, there is a difference. You as a sophisticated connoisseur of news and information to be aware of the difference. There's also another uh, reason which is in item number three. Because if you look on the table of contents of the uh, Grumman uh, Apollo News reference, you will find my name and a section called the moon. And that is amplified in section number three tonight, item number three, because in their infinite wisdom, for some reason, uh, the Grumman Corporation, which produced and created the lunar module, humankind's first modern spacecraft to go to the surface of another world, they asked me, yeah, Richard Hoagland, to write the section on the moon describing what they were going to do, why they were doing it, and what the effect would be on humanity in the so-called out years in terms of a result. So I actually have a little teeny tiny part of ownership in the extraordinary, historic, one-of-a-kind Apollo program to send Americans to the moon first before the Russians, enunciated back in 1961 on May, uh, was it May 25th? Yeah, May 25th, 1961, before a joint session of Congress by President John F. Kennedy. So without further ado, um, I want to check and make sure that our panelists are standing by because uh, First up, we're going to bring on uh, Barbara Honiger tonight. As you know, Barbara was a member of the Reagan White House. She served in the White House in a uh, senior policy position. She was actually involved, as you're going to hear, in uh, opening the door to a little-known program to help women astronauts become astronauts at a time when NASA was squeaky clean white and squeaky clean male, you know, just a bunch of white guys hanging out in short leaf shirts and narrow ties with pocket protectors full of pens. Um, that changed in part because of Barbara's efforts in the Reagan administration. And to give you an example, um, we've all heard or some of us have seen the movie Hidden Figures about the uh, mathematicians behind the scene, including one brilliant black mathematician who basically John Glenn would not launch without making sure that she had checked his his uh, flight plans and his celestial mechanics and all the uh, attributes and assignations of a, a mission into Earth orbit. Well, when we launched Apollo 11, and I say we as the country, 
or maybe we as I was a teeny tiny part of Apollo. When we launched, you know, Neil and Buzz and Michael into orbit to go to the moon on Apollo 11, there was one woman engineer in the mission control center at Cape Canaveral, uh, part of the launch team, the the launch uh, control center, the LCC, who was overseeing the incredibly complex engineering around the Saturn V, the the Apollo spacecraft, et cetera, et cetera. One woman out of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of male and 99.99% white engineers. So now we fast forward the film. It's 50 years later. And one third of NASA is women. One third. I mean, two thirds are still men. Most of them are still white. But as a country, you know, this is a work in progress. We're moving toward a more perfect union. We ain't there yet, but one third is better than one. One out of hundreds. Who, by the way, is still around and is, uh, you know, sounding incredibly prescient and perspicacious and, you know, is, is totally as her wits about her. And I, I wish that some network would snap her up to kind of give commentary on Artemis, given that Artemis is formed and embodied and built around the concept of the woman, the twin sister of Apollo, Artemis herself, the goddess of the moon. So um, with on that note, uh, let me open the mics here. And Barbara, welcome back to The Other Side of Midnight. It's been forever, like 24 hours since I last talked to you. <laughs> yeah, I thought I'd just stay on the program all the way through. <laughs> <laughs> okay, there are several things I want to talk about. But given that we would not be here tonight without a president named John Kennedy, and he right. was so rudely and horribly and abruptly taken away from us, and that you and I and Robert Morningstar share in the idea that he was killed in major part because of his efforts to go to the moon and to involve the Soviets and to unveil what was really waiting for all of humanity as part of the whole ET UFO paradigm shift. You just have come off the second day, I think, at the annual JFK Assassinations Conference. Tell us what you have found out and then lead into what we should know regarding Kennedy's role in going to the moon. (laughs) Okay. Well, I'll tell you, I've, uh, yes, you're correct about that. Um, I literally about 15 minutes ago walked in the door here in a suburb of Dallas, Arlington, Texas from literally 12 hours at the second day of the uh, CAPA conference. uh, And that's, stands for Citizens Against Political Assassinations. It's the uh, organization that puts on an annual JFK conference here in Dallas. Um, uh, the chairman of the board is Dr. Cyril Wecht, the, the famous... Uh, oh, the forensic pathologist. The famous forensic pathologist, and he's just amazing. He's, I believe he just turned 80 or something like oh, that. Oh, is that all? Gosh, okay. Yeah, that's all, yeah. <laughs> I, I think our president just had a birthday today turning 80. I think. Uh, I, I think you're right. You mean Biden? Yeah, yeah. How many yeah, presidents well, do we have? <laughs> well, and I think isn't Nancy Pelosi 82? And God knows McConnell, he's getting up there. By the way, people, these are these are the top three people who would be president of the United States. They're basically in their 80s, you know. 
Um, so what does that tell us about, uh, about uh, what do you call that, octogenarians, right? <laughs> it, it tells us that state-of-the-art medical technology is really, really very good and getting much better. And the physics is with us because these 80-year-old folks do not resemble my grandparents in their 80s at all, at all. No, no, exactly. They're just amazingly young for for their age. And, you know, I'm 75, just for the record. I turned 75 on October 28th. And, you know, I, like like you, I'm sure I feel I'm only 33, right? Anyway. See, I think part of it has to do with motivation. You know, there's, yeah. that, there's that old cliche, rest and rust. It's the yeah. fact that we're dealing with people who have a mission, as John McCain loved to say, higher than themselves. And I think that keeps these people focused and young and operating far beyond the, quote, norm, far beyond expectation. Yes, and I would say that applies to those of us on the show as well. <laughs> I hope. <laughs> hold on, hold on. Water is my, my apologies. Yeah, okay. I, I hope you have water. I've been, I've been talking to people for literally 12 hours, so <clears throat> my voice may break every once in a while here. But, but I think your first question was, you'd like to hear a bit about the conference, right? Yes, yes, by all means. Okay, well, it was a wonderful conference. Now, I, this is something like, uh, you know, I've been to many JFK conferences, many of them in Dallas. Uh, I've probably spoken at four or five of them here in the last five or six years. And uh, this time, I just decided I was going to have the luxury of, of just being in the audience and taking notes. And I'm glad I did because it was so information packed. But what I thought I'd do is I would just briefly let you know some of the highlights from the program. Um, we, we, we watched Oliver Stone's full four-hour new documentary, which I think it's called uh, The JFK Assassination um, Destiny Betrayed. In other words, uh, it's Destiny Betrayed is in the title, and I believe on Amazon Prime. Um, there's a two-hour version, but don't bother with that. Go to the four-hour four version. It's in four parts, and I highly, highly recommend it. So we got to see that. Uh, it is available on Amazon.com. Um, Jim DiEugenio, um has published a book. I have it in my hand right here in a moment. Um, Diogenio uh, was basically the uh, – he was the scriptwriter for this amazing film, new film of Oliver Stone. And, um, of course, he's the author of a number of great books on, on the JFK assassination. But this one is called JFK Revisited Through the Looking Glass. That is the name of the book that goes with both of the films. Um, JFK Revisited Through the Looking Glass is also the title on Amazon Prime of the two-hour shorter version, but I don't recommend it. I recommend JFK um, Destiny Betrayed. Well, see, the well, thing these, these days is you can watch what I call asynchronously. You watch for yeah. 20 minutes, 30 minutes, you go do something else, you're bored with what the, something else was, well, you come back and you watch another 20, 30 yeah. minutes, or you have lunch. Or, in other words, it's all on the viewer's schedule, not being programmed by a network where you have to be there or you'll never see it again. Absolutely. You can watch it at your leisure. Um, so that, that was – there were basically every single presentation was great, and uh, so it's hard to pull out the highlights, but I'll give a few. Um, <clears throat> Steve Jaffe, he's an, he was an investigator for Jim Garrison. 
uh, and he talked about his experiences personally going to France to obtain the Zabruder film from French intelligence. That was fascinating. Um, one of the most exciting talks was by Dr. David Mantic, M-A-N-T-I-K, um, about what happened in JFK to JFK's limousine. Uh, but it was it was a more important. Uh, uh, yeah, I, more think, I think I had him on the show a few years ago. Oh, good. Well, I'm glad you did. Well, one of the things that was fascinating to me, and I think this is important to say, <clears throat> even though this was a JFK conference. And even though my focus, as you know, is is really on 9/11 and has been ever since 9/11, um, and I'm now the uh, the chairman of the board of the Lawyers Committee for 9/11 Inquiry, uh, and the author of October Surprise. You go to a conference like this, and there were probably at least 65 to 70 people. I mean, paid, and then it was online for I'm sure hundreds or maybe maybe a few thousand more. Um, <clears throat> but in any case. The amazing thing that happens is these people are truth seekers per se. So even though it's a JFK conference, if they see somebody that they say, oh, my God, you're the author of October Surprise, and they want to talk to you about that. <laughs> uh, and then somebody else says, uh, oh, my God, aren't you involved with 9-11 Truth? I've got to talk to you about that. And so there, there is this synergy that's happening at these truth conferences. I call it the, the it's the truth movement per se. <clears throat> and so this one was especially vibrant because there was all this cross fertilization between basically 9-11 and JFK uh, uh, truth seekers. Probably the most exciting presentation <clears throat> was by John Newman, Dr. John Newman. He has, of course, uh, he's now just published an amazing book. I have that in my hand. It's his fourth book uh, on the JFK assassination. It just came out. It's called Uncovering Popov's Mole, the Assassination of President Kennedy. This is very, very critical. Um, so what he basically <clears throat> he basically demonstrated to us in an hour presentation uh, that uh, this 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 uh, Russian uh, defector uh, warned uh, warned the United States intelligence community uh, warned them that there was a an extremely high level mole uh, in the CIA and this was of course in the lead up to during and after the Kennedy assassination and he has I'll just leave it at this he has identified that mole. And the amazing thing is that he has demonstrated that that mole, whose last name was uh, something like uh, Soli, S-O-L-I-E or something like that, um, that this mole was actually the head of the security department, of basically separate from uh, and in, a, in an interesting way above James Jesus Angleton. And so basically the bottom line is the main mole hunter of the CIA before, at, and after the Kennedy assassination was, in fact, the main Soviet mole hunter was a Soviet mole. So that's the bottom line of that amazing presentation and book. <clears throat> um, I was also very, very excited when uh, Dr. David, and he's an MD doctor as well as a professor, um, uh, Dr. David Mantic on what happened to JFK's limousine and uh, an amazing presentation 
Uh, he came up to me at the beginning of the conference during the first break, and he said, you're Barbara Honiger, right? And I said, yes. He said, you're the one person I want to talk to at this conference. And the room was full of very famous people um, who have been working in truth movements, and including JFK, of course. And so we spent many, many hours together during breaks and during meals. Uh, and the bottom line is he is extremely excited about 9-11 truth. Every single person that I met, I gave away, literally gave away, and I put them on the table, and they, they took them. At least 60 of my DVDs on the Pentagon attack on 9-11. And most people I talked to had already watched it and were bowled over by it. So there's, there's this incredible synergy in the truth movement, and we're cross-fertilizing, which is a very, very good sign. Um, so I could, I could give you All right. We are at the bottom of the hour. Let's hit pause. My guest this morning, my first guest is Barbara Honiger, who, as you know, creds several different realities simultaneously. And we're talking at some length tonight about John Kennedy. I'm going to read an editorial by a, a, a colleague of ours, very timely, that came out today. And then I'm going to have Robert Morningstar talk about the same thing. Because John Kennedy is the guy who basically is the grandfather of why we're going to the moon tonight and why we're on the threshold of potentially astonishing, earth-shattering, paradigm-changing, history-making revelations about what's really on the moon and how it can change everybody's lives. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Midnight for this Sunday night, October, November 20th, 2022. Lots of twos in there. And then 11. Uh, we're talking with Barbara Honiger about the current, uh, and I'll use a kind of a you know catchphrase here, a JFK 
assassinations conference, which actually is larger and covers a lot more assassinations for political reasons than just JFK, but that's really what gave it impetus all those decades and decades ago. And the reason we're talking about this is because it was literally on the eve of consummating an historic agreement between the United States and the USSR, between Kennedy and Khrushchev, to go to the moon together after Kennedy had launched it as in competition with the Soviet system, the Soviet uh, ideologues, the Soviet technology, the Soviet state, the mindset, freedom versus communism, freedom versus autocracy. God, what does that sound familiar? And he was on the verge of turning that on its head and going to the moon with the Soviets and discovering the ruins on the moon with the Soviets. And then he was killed. And this editorial writer, which I'm going to read shortly after Barbara you know, gets to the right stopping point, he brings it all together with the other perennial cover-up which could have affected mankind's destiny decades and decades ago, if not even longer, which is the whole UFO, now UAP situation. We're on the cusp of some incredibly historic breakthroughs, one of which could literally, when Artemis does its powered flyby at 60 miles above the surface of the moon tomorrow morning, could kick off a totally new chapter in an unfolding, unlimited human future for all 8 billion souls on planet Earth tonight. Okay, Barbara, back to you. Okay. <clears throat> well, I'll say a few other things about the uh, JFK conference and kind of breaking news. And then I want to be sure, I don't know if this is the right part of the program, but I would like to draw people's attention at some point, Richard, to my Saving Apollo 11 article and this phenomenal synchronicity of many between you and I and our experiences having to do with the moon. Um, my Saving Apollo 11 article is my second item, uh, number two. Um, the subtitle is How a Top Secret Corona Satellite and fast-thinking Navy and Air Force weathermen saved the Apollo 11 astronauts from disaster upon splashdown in the Pacific. And this is a phenomenal story. Everybody has to read it. <clears throat> so be sure and go to that. That's uh, number two uh, in my items tonight. Um, so I don't know if we're, we're going to be talking about Artemis and the Moon yet, but you want me to finish with JFK? Yeah, yeah by all means. Uh, okay. So another major highlight for me was Dr. David Montague. Does that ring a bell? Not for me. Okay. Well, um, Dr. David Montague was, he, he's a young man. He said he was 55, but he looks like in his, in his 30s. Um, Dr. David Montague, um, he is now uh, the Associate Vice Chancellor for Academic Affairs at the University of Arkansas at Little Rock. But most importantly, he had been the senior investigator for the very, very important uh, United States Assassination Records Review Board during the Clinton administration. And his presentation was on what it was like to have absolute clearance 
top secret PSI clearance and top secret SCI clearance and to go into these skiffs and to go into these uh, secure rooms at the National Archives uh, in um, uh, in D.C. and Maryland and two, two locations in Washington, D.C. and Maryland and to go in and look at the um, look at their, I believe it was the original of this Bruder film, frame by frame, um, to, to actually uh, go into the cold lockers in a, in a space suit, you know, a, a, a clean suit, uh, like you'd have to be in, in a, in a, uh, you know, uh, high level security bio lab. Uh, and he would go in and he would, he would see, uh, Jackie's dress with the blood still on it. He would see Kennedy's shirt with the blood still on it. I mean, it, it was that was that was a presentation that brought things really wow. down to earth. That was phenomenal. So um, yes, I agree with you, and maybe that's a that's a good link to go back into the moon and space program. We wouldn't be at the moon. Uh, we wouldn't be going to the moon today if it hadn't have been for JFK making that a goal for all of humanity. So, um, you know, before he died and, um, you know, it's finally happening and this is his legacy. Okay. Well, let me read this editorial because this is from uh, Rich Sheck, who I have talked to about being on the show and we're kind of trying to yeah. juggle dates. Uh, we've never met. We've actually never even talked. We've exchanged a lot of emails. I agree with some of his analyses. I really dramatically disagree with some others, but uh, you know that's what makes horse races. And as a, as a fan of the First Amendment, you know you don't want everybody automatically being on the same page if they have evidence and data that uh, comes up with something different. So uh, he wrote this uh, and sent it around today. Uh, Robert, I think, is familiar with the Robert Morningstar. So let me just read this, and then we're going to. Uh, I'll have you comment, and I'll bring Robert on. Uh, to kind of back into this and then uh, into his work uh, on the assassination and his perspective, which is very similar to yours and mine, that one of the prime reasons that Kennedy was killed was to basically cut off our access to the whole UFO extraterrestrial uh, phenomenology, which means someone's trying to deny our history and and keep us in the dark because it is terribly uh, embarrassing and or deleterious to their own plans for the human race that uh, the, the cooperation between the Soviets and the U.S. that Kennedy suddenly decided to foster could not be allowed to stand. So this is what uh, Rich Schecht said uh, this morning. Mm -hmm. Quote, dark journalist Daniel List invests almost four hours exploring the Kennedy assassination in his latest video. And then he gives a um, um, uh, YouTube link, which I, I will actually post this as one of my items, you know, after the show. Continuing, the most dramatic conclusion he comes to is there is a direct connection between UFO disclosure and the murder of the former president. Yes, the CIA was involved in the event, but needs to keep it covered up in order to avoid revealing the full truth about UFOs. President Trump was mandated by the 1992 JFK Act to declassify all the assassination files in late 2017, but balked at this legal requirement, an action I deemed impeachable, says Sheck, because he failed to faithfully execute 
the laws as the Constitution demands of the chief executive. Now come the list to speculate that keeping the files closed six decades after the killing has far more to do with sustaining ex-protect control of UFO information than avoiding the embarrassment of CIA involvement. This is a theme List has visited many times in recent years, but his ability to contextualize the JFK era and the topic of UFOs while relating it to current events is quite remarkable. In a previous podcast, List has suggested that the Mar-a-Lago raid may have something to do with files that Trump might have taken with him pertaining to JFK's death and UFO secrecy. I agree. For those looking to be impressed by DJ's ability to connect dots, seeing Roswell on the map in one scene from Seven Days in May, one of my favorite films, the classic 1960s film about an attempted coup by disgruntled members of the military that fascinated JFK because he turned over the White House when he went to Camp David to the film crew to shoot parts of the film at the White House before 63, may be enough to impress skeptical viewers of how powerful are his many insights. That and so much more makes it worthwhile to view this update as a way to honor memory of JFK's legacy 59 years after his murder on 11-22-63, and to see how the echoes of the assassination can still be heard today. The quest for truth and the end of UFO secrecy continues thanks to the work of List and many other researchers to whom we owe a debt of gratitude for their tireless efforts. Comments? Well, yeah, that's that's great. I agree with Richard Check, whom I know. And, um, you know, that reminds me, well, first a question. Uh, Did I understand correctly? And if so, I didn't know it. Did I understand correctly that um, President Kennedy, while in the White House, while in office, um, allowed uh, scenes to be shot for the movie Seven Days in May in the White House? Yes, yes. That's what was so stunning. No, he was involved in the production, which means, again, in an Emily Dickinson fashion, he knew what could happen, and he was trying to tell the truth. Like Eisenhower, remember, he warned about the military-industrial complex. Well, JFK did one better. He had a whole damn movie created using the White House, using the real Oval Office as the scene to get the message out to the mainstream in the form of a Hollywood production, which is oh, incredibly important to read. That's incredibly important. Yep, yep. Um, now, 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 here's something else you don't know. Um, who was Obama's Secretary of Defense? Well, that was the, um, oh, Obama's. Yeah, Obama. Oh, Obama? That, that, was, that, that was my neighbor. Um, uh, my neighbor... <laughs> I'm, I'm spacing on it. Um, Leon Panetta. On no. the way. Yes, Robert. Going, isn't it? No, I, well, we can, we can obviously Google this. Okay, here's the point. On the way back from a meeting in Afghanistan, the 
Secretary of Defense sent a message through the New York Times as a direct quote in the New York Times about what he was watching on the way back to Washington to debrief the president on the status of the incursions and our you know, forces against terrorism in Afghanistan. And the film he chose to watch on that flight back from Afghanistan, which he told the New York Times reporter who put it in the paper, which obviously was a message, was seven days in May. Oh my goodness. And okay. then and then Obama fired one of the I think the guy who was in charge of the whole uh Afghanistan military uh deployment in a very yeah. controversial uh fashion. And there was also, you know, uh, uh Michael what's his name? Who's the who's the former head of the uh, uh DIA, Defense Intelligence Agency? that Michael, Michael, that Obama strongly recommended Trump not get involved with. And of course, Trump did exactly the opposite. Um, I can't remember you're his talking, name. Yeah, yeah, you're talking about Michael Flynn? Michael Flynn, Michael Flynn, yes, yeah. yes. Mm-hmm. Who has a brother who was a general in the Pentagon during yeah. the January 6th insurrection. Absolutely. You know, what a tangle. Of, the point is, the common through line here is military industrial takeover of civilian authority of the United States of America. Right. Okay. I have one comment on this. I, I, I actually think that um, <clears throat> that these references to seven days in May that it's that it's some kind of a code. Um, but it's it's an extremely important fact. I have to be thinking a little bit more about before I make any further comments in the future. But there is one thing that that was said that I learned at this conference. I meant to mention it earlier. That. It, it sent chills up and down my, my spine, frankly. Um, and that is, um, if you're interested, uh, a little bit later in the program, I'll go into my notes and I'll have to get the exact name for you. But the bottom line is, uh, there is a, a JFK researcher who has published this. And I have the title of the book I can get from my notes later in the program if you want. <clears throat> There's a JFK researcher who was told by another JFK researcher um, that that second JFK researcher uh, had an inside source, very high-level inside source, regarding, of course, everything surrounding the JFK assassination. And the topic came up, well, why do all these presidents, one after the other, even after promising to do so, fail to declassify the records, even though the law requires them to, all of the JFK assassination records. And by the way, um, the new deadline is next month on December 15th for all of the records that are not declassified yet to be declassified and released to the public. December 15th coming up. Well, the what, what made uh, the pins and needles go up and down my spine, literally, uh, was when this person giving the talk um, said that the second JFK researcher told the first that he had been told by a high-level inside source when they were talking about that, when he was asked that question. He said, my source told me, my source said that he had seen all the records, that he'd seen the, the unreleased records. And this was some years ago now, maybe within the last six, seven years. Right. Um, before Trump, just before Trump apparently. But anyway, that he'd seen the unreleased records and that 
the truth was too terrible to ever be released because the American public, if they knew, would never understand why. And there was something about this too terrible uh, to ever be told. And that rang a bell. Well, it has echoes of the third prophecy of Fatima and the Pope. Well, what I was going to say is, you know, not that Trump is the greatest truth teller on the planet. (laughs) Okay. okay? (laughs) But um, he claims, because the the JFK Records Act uh, required uh, the documents all to be released during his term. I believe, what was in that, 2017 or something? Mm-hmm. And he was, he claimed that he was shown at least a good deal of the still unclassified records. And he went public saying that based upon what I have seen, these records must never be released. It, it, it was a very similar message to the truth is too terrible. Well, then what's the point of Madisonian democracy? If you think your citizens are only allowed to see things that won't upset them, but they they really can never know about things that may change their whole view of life, reality, dimensionals, what happens when we die. Remember the the guy at the Pentagon who yelled at uh, uh, Wheeler, you know, you're you're not supposed to know this until you die? You're not supposed to know that until you die. (laughs) Yeah, well, but what's the point of Madisonian democracy if we're not supposed to hear and see and act on the truth. Well, I agree with you, of course. I'm not advocating for that position. I'm just reporting to you. Well, um, it's, what, it's, Whatever is being withheld in these really not that many records that still need to be released, um, they're, they're obviously the core of the big secrets. And uh, I don't know if they're going to be released on December 15th. I would, I imagine they're going, I imagine that, that uh, Biden will a- approve the release of some of them. But probably not this great secret, whatever it is. But how can even a president contravene that which is enshrined in law? <laughs> he does. In other words, that means we, nothing matters anymore, if no, it ever no, did. That's true. No, I learned at the conference that there are, you know, when it, whenever Congress passes a law like this, they always give themselves an out. And, and the law, the, the, the Records uh, Release Act, JFK Records Act, um, has this deadline, and they keep putting it off, and now the new deadline is coming December 15, 2022. But the law has six exceptions, six, six ways that any agency who has records that anybody demands to be released, including the president, can come up with one of these excuses um, for not releasing them. And, uh, you know, their nas- one of the big one, of course, is national security. So, so Congress gave an out, six outs actually, uh, in in the Records Act. So we, we'll see what happens. But I wanted to get that quote across: the truth is too terrible for the American people ever to know. That's not very encouraging. See, no, the not- thing that's so disappointing to me about List and Sheck and all those other folks, including people that you and I know very well together who will not come back on this show because, you know, it's too sensitive. None of them mention the damn ruins. It's one yeah. thing to talk about spaceships and UFOs and things that go bump in the night and things seen on radar and things seen on, you know, fuzzy infrared film and all. 
but the ruins are implacably there. They're either there or they're not there. And with appropriate photography, no one, until they land and go over and kick the walls, will be able to gainsay that they're not what they appear to be, which is geometric, ancient, structured ruins in incredible disrepair. And there's so many of them, they cover huge portions of the lunar surface. And they were first seen, my item number four, by the CIA from Earth orbit, item number five, because originally Project Corona, as you know, was the answer to uh, Khrushchev turning down, uh, or, no, it wasn't Khrushchev, it was, uh, uh, was it Khrushchev? Yeah, it was Khrushchev, yeah, turning, it was Khrushchev. Down, turning down Eisenhower's open skies uh, idea and saying, no, you can't fly airplanes over us, and I guess we can't fly airplanes over you. So Eisenhower turned to his intelligence community, says, what can you do? in the way of looking down from space. And they came up with the technology for what they called, incredibly appropriately named, Project Corona, which I think is a triple entendre a la Emily Dickinson, uh, you know, cubed. And, and it was also the Corona satellite that saved Neil Armstrong. It's the, the, same, it's the same program. It's the same damn yeah. program. Okay, so had multiple uses. So if you look at number five, it shows you geometrically what the CIA, in response to Eisenhower's call to look at how many missiles the Soviets had aimed at us in all-out thermonuclear Armageddon annihilation mad scenarios, and they said, Mr. President, we can do this. We can do it in the next number of years, and so he authorized a program, a very secret program called Corona, which was supposed to, if you look at the bottom left of my number five diagram – you know, look down from a polar orbit, take lots and lots of pictures on film, and then eject the film capsule, which would be captured as after it re-entered the atmosphere by an airplane somewhere over the South Pacific, a uh, uh, Air Force uh, cargo uh, plane with a kind of a trapeze thingy, which would snag the parachute, bring it inside, fly it to CIA headquarters on both coasts, make copies and then send it to photo interpreters to analyze it. On the first successful missions, they got more square mileage of high-quality film of the Soviet Union's uh, military capabilities than in all the U-2 flights beforehand combined, up to and including the flight where the Francis Gary Powers was shot down uh, by a, uh, a air-launched, uh, or sorry, a ground-launched air-to-air -air missile. Um, so if you look at the third panel in my number five, it turns out that Project Corona also, and we're trying to get to the bottom of how this happened, it looked at a place that the Soviets were nowhere near to be and could never have been a threat from, i.e. the moon. Now, how do I know that? Because a few years ago, I was offered a copy of Corona film. And through a very complicated soap opera process, I didn't physically have it in my possession, but I had people who did briefly. They made some copies of some frames. The frames, I was able to work with the frames. They told me that every single frame had nothing to do with Soviet missile bases or airports or you know bombers or whatever. It was every single frame was shot of the moon on what was supposed to be a satellite reconnaissance of capabilities of the Soviet Union here on Earth. What was the CIA doing looking at the moon in collaboration, by the way, with the U.S. Air Force. Well, if you look at number six, 
On the left is the corona image. On the right is the uh, a, a terrestrial image shot with a major telescope for comparison, I think the Lick Observatory. And you'll see that on the left-hand image taken by the CIA in Corona across a quarter million miles, but in the vacuum of space, there's weird obscuration of very interesting and well-known features uh, on the moon's surface that is not present in the photographs taken from the surface of the Earth through the Earth's atmosphere with a major terrestrial telescope. How do we explain this? Obviously, the, the, the filtering of the CIA moon image was different than the filtering of the ground-based moon image. And because they were in a vacuum, um, if you look in the ultraviolet, that's where you'll see the glass. This is my first indication that most of the moon's surface was covered by a multi-leveled, miles-thick glass shield in decks or layers of incredible complexity, incredible age, incredible sophistication, something that is so far beyond our current technological capabilities or even our, our wildest visions that anybody who looked at this and realized it was real would basically freak out and it would fall in the category, Barbara, of things the American people can never know about because whoever did this, if they wanted to, could squash us like a bug. And can I just ask you a simple question? Yeah, sure. Um, I'd like to know, how do we know that those photographs actually that were delivered to you were from Corona and not from something else? Because there is a frame where it's listed in terms of actual ID numbers, the film registration, and my name has been put on the film in magic in in, in uh, you know magic marker uh, as designated for me. No, I understand that, but that that could be true from an image taken by a telescope we don't know about or something. Yeah, but you can't do this from the Earth. You can only do it from space because ultraviolet does not penetrate the Earth's atmosphere. Okay, I understand. That's the answer. Okay. And we right. now have umpteen images taken by Apollo and all kinds of unmanned satellites, including the Japanese and the Chinese. And everybody agree. I mean, they, all their data agrees. There's stuff there. There's a dome there. There's incredible glass structures. So it turns out the CIA was merely the first to give this information to Kennedy. And that's when Kennedy changed totally from we have to keep the Soviets from getting there first to we're going to go there with the Soviets. And we're at the top of the hour. My guest this morning, Barbara Honiger, uh, Robert Morningstar is waiting in the wings. Andrew Curry is standing just off stage. Keith Morgan is monitoring the dials. And have I forgotten anyone? Yes, Georgia Lambert will join us in hour number three. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return.
The other side is midnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Support the broadcast and don't miss another groundbreaking conversation. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side is midnight.com. back on this Sunday night, rapidly approaching Monday morning, when the Artemis One spacecraft, the Orion spacecraft, will be put into a elongated 39,000-mile apogee orbit of the moon, 39,000 miles, twice 19.5, which will spend seven days orbiting the moon, looking down, taking lots of pictures, exercising the spacecraft. And the prelude to all of this was John Kennedy's decision initially to initiate Project Apollo in a race with the communist order of the Soviet Union, hell-bent on destroying Western democracies with all-out thermonuclear war. And then something happened. And in mid-flight in September of 1963, just weeks before he would be terminated, murdered, his life cut short, his plans in disarray. In a formal address to the United Nations, he shocked the world by turning from hawk to dove and proposing that we, the West, freedom-loving peoples all over the world, spearheaded by the United States, go to the moon in Apollo with cosmonauts from the Soviet Union. And what happened in between? The successful launch and recovery of the first operational Corona satellite film, which I presume, if this was their secret intent, buried three layers deep below the secrecy and the misdirection and the false uh, blind canyons was to survey what was on the moon that we and the Soviets had to share together. And that seems to have been the turning point, which in my book led directly to John Kennedy's assassination. And that, of course, is where we come into the full uh, venue of UFOs and extraterrestrials, because if in fact we're not looking at ancient, ancient, ancient millions of years old dead ruins, but something which is occupied by current folks, 
and who are flying around in spaceships which can defy gravity, control inertia, dart thousands of light years out and back in hours or seconds or whatever, and go between dimensions, for which none of our terrestrial technology can hold a candle. All of that would be in the category of, good God, things we can never tell the American people, because then they won't believe us anymore, and they won't follow our leadership, and we can't control them, and that would be as worse as, you know, dogs and cats living together, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, Robert, Morningstar, that is your cue. What are your thoughts on all this? Well, the first thought I have, and I don't want to, uh, to forget it, so I'm mentioning it now, is to Barbara and to tell you, Barbara, that there is a direct link, an incontrovertible direct link between the assassination of John F. Kennedy and the World Trade Centers. And I'll give you details on that uh, later. Oh, wonderful. With regard to... Um, Rich Sheck, I agree with him completely. Before the show, you said I moderated my views on Donald Trump, and I have for two reasons. One is the one that was mentioned, that he broke, in my, in my estimation, he broke the law. The law was that he was supposed to release those files and, and in 2017 on a specified date, and he did say to uh, Judge and, and, uh, Napolitano, Judge Napolitano said to him, why didn't you release the files? And he said to him, if you had read what I've read, you'd know why I cannot release those files. It's too terrible to know. That's right. Yeah. So this idea, but again, that might be a a useful cover story. Terrible is in the eye of the beholder. Terrible for one group could be incredibly beneficent. If you're looking at a control group designed to keep humanity in slavery, then anything that opens the door and kills slavery is too terrible for us to know for the slave owners. No, the truth is beautiful. Now, no matter how gruesome. He's still alive. He hasn't died of shock. Yeah, right. Uh, The second thing, um, again, I'll, I'll just mention it. That's one reason why, uh, you know, I cooled my jets on Donald Trump because I saw that he didn't have the, the courage to execute the law as it was written. And the other one was that he's a man who was easily fooled by the likes of Dr. Fauci and Dr. Burks and went along with un- untested technology that to the detriment of the whole world. But regard Sheck, he's quite right. And uh, he's quite right about Daniel List, the dark journalist. I've been following his work for quite a while now. He's a very dedicated person. And he has put together, as he says, connecting the dots. Well, there are dots that I left a trail since 1994 when I found, I discovered the Angleton memo. And I'll just say this. uh, President Kennedy signed his own death warrant on November 12, 1963 which was probably the busiest day of his whole tenure as president of the United States. On November 12, 1963, President Kennedy issued a directive to the uh, James Webb, the director of the uh, National Aeronautics and Space Administration. Uh, He issued another directive to the CIA, the Department of Defense, uh, CC'd NASA, U.S. Army, U.S. Navy, everybody, 
that he wanted a reclassification of all unknowns, which was the code word for UFOs. Because he and Khrushchev had almost come to the nuclear war, not just over the missiles in Cuba, but over overt acts of hostility by UFO fleets, swarms, that would appear over the North Pole heading toward Russia, making the Russians think that they were being attacked by missiles from the United States, and vice versa. Swarms of UFOs would come over the North Pole, be picked up by the Dew Line and the Bemuse Line, those delayed early warning system and the ballistic missile early warning system, making us think that the Russians had launched a nuclear attack on the United States. And this would raise the DEFCON level at um, Cheyenne Mountain, NORAD, and uh, Strategic Air Command, and would drive everyone bonkers because in a couple of minutes, the DEFCON situation would go from DEFCON 3 to DEFCON 2 and possibly DEFCON 1. And then these swarms of UFOs would just stop dead in their tracks, just stop dead right over Canada and go vertically straight up into outer space. Now, this was done repeatedly to Russia and to the United States. And President Kennedy figured out, hey, this is a dangerous thing. These, this entity is trying to lure us into a nuclear war in which we, through which we would annihilate each other. So on that day, November 12th, I said it was a very busy day. Can I stop you one second, Robert? How do we, sure. know, how do we know any of this? Supporting well, evidence, document. Yeah, but how do we know? Evidence, evidence. I know it from documents that are in my possession, some of which I uh, put up today uh, on your website. So that's how we know. That's how I know. Isn't this also part of the Woods research for decades and decades, Robert Wood and his Robert son? Wood, a lot, yes, a lot of – Robert Woods and I worked together for many years uh, corresponding. And, um, Tell people who Dr. Woods was. Dr. Robert Wood was uh, an aerospace engineer. He worked in the space program. He has a son named Ryan Wood. He has a website called majesticdocuments.com. And through freedom of information and uh, many, many connections that he developed over the last 30 years, he brought out a treasure trove of documentation. And two of the most important ones were the Angleton Memo of November 12, 1963, and the Burt Memo, which uh, he released. He released it without really knowing what it was about. Now, because I was involved intimately in the JFK assassination research, I knew certain things that UFO researchers didn't know because I've been involved for so many years in counterintelligence and assassinations. I know the lingo. I know the jargon. So the Byrne Memo, this is the one I'm referring to now, came out, and it's nine pages of documents that are singed. They are burned. Like uh, the Shroud of Turin has, has an aspect. Like of someone it. tried to destroy them by throwing them in a fireplace. Yes, exactly. And the story is that some white hat CIA guy who was told to destroy them, just like Ken Johnson was told to destroy all those photographs that he saved. Of the moon of the moon, this CIA officer decided, no, I'm not going to burn these. So he pulled them out of the fire after they had started to burn. So certain parts of them 
are singed, other parts of them are burned, a couple of parts have holes. But there was enough information in there for me to realize that what I was reading was the execution order for President John F. Kennedy, because it refers to Lancer. Lancer was the code name. The Secret Service code name for the president. Yes, Secret Service code name for President John F. Kennedy. And it goes on to say that Lancer continues to ask questions which we cannot answer. If he, and he's, it's, a, it's a memo to uh, a wider circle of spooks. And it says that you must not answer any question that Lancer poses to you regarding unknowns. You must deflect them. You must evade him. But the situation is this, that when there is no more hope for cooperation in Washington, and there is no precipitation. The condition should be wet. Now, I had learned that term, the condition should be wet, in terms of something called wet works. Yep. Wet works refers to blood spilling. And the Russians coined the phrase, they called it wet works. So the CIA learned it, I learned it uh, later on through my uh, contacts, uh, including a, a very well-known Time Magazine reporter who was intimately involved in the JFK. It's a very thinly veiled code. Yes. Well, the people who know it is pretty blatant. So I was able to decipher that and realize, my goodness, out of the UFO field comes the proof that UFOs were the principal cause for John F. Kennedy's assassination. The other part about uh, that day, November 12th, is that President Kennedy had a hotline exchange with Khrushchev, emphasizing the need to cooperate regarding unknowns, because they, they went back and forth and they said, as you know, we came close, we came very close to, uh, to a, uh, a Greek tragedy. President Kennedy always spoke in very literary terms. He likened the, the, the disaster of accidental nuclear war to an ancient Greek tragedy in that memo, which is classified umbra. It's a higher classification than top secret or TSI or cosmic top secret as it is known in NATO. And then there's the memo that I call the Angleton memo. I couldn't find it today, but it's the memo that I first discovered and shared with Jim Mars. I was in the room, Barbara, with Dr. David Mantic, Jim Mars, James Fetzer, Roy Schaefer in Dallas in 1996. And I had the memo and I said, hey, Jim, have you ever seen this? And he said, no. I said, well, look at it. And it says it's a directive to the CIA uh, primarily since they were in charge of the UFO secrets. And the problem was that we had so many compartmentalized secret space programs and secret research programs that no one knew what was what. So the CIA didn't know it was a Navy program. The Navy didn't know what was an Army or an Air Force program. And everyone was confused. And Kennedy said, this is really bad because not only don't you know your own programs, but we can't distinguish your unknowns from the real unknowns, which is the alien presence. So he demanded a reclassification of all unknowns. And he demanded from the CIA, Department of Defense, 
and the, the services that by February of 1964, they should have a white paper on his desk with the reclassification of all unknowns. Which he the then planned to share with the Soviets, with Khrushchev. With the Soviets, and he was planning to reveal the alien presence to the American people after being reelected president in 1964. That was really the gist of it. Now, regarding the World Trade Center, Barbara, you're going to be surprised, maybe even shocked. But there is a very nefarious fellow who was involved in all of this in the uh, JFK assassination in the New Orleans district. And he was part of the setup of uh, Lee Oswald as the pasty. He was one of the handlers. He was intimately involved with the the anti-Castro program out of New Orleans and out of uh, Miami and Halfway Key. And his name was Clay Shaw. Clay Shaw was a captain in World War II, and Clay Shaw is the man who received the surrender. He captured Werner von Braun. After the war... Oh, my gosh. Yes. After the war... So he was in the Hearts Mountains at the end of the war. That's right. And that did remember that Werner von Braun and Reinhard Galen knew that if they were captured by the Russians, there were no negotiations, they would just be instantly enslaved or executed. So both groups, the the middle work, see the middle work is the real name of the CIA. Do you ever wonder why we call it CIA or, and NASA? Well, central, middle. Yeah, 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 I'm, I'm telling you. But why don't we call it United States Space Agency? And why don't we call it United States Intelligence Agency? And the reason is that the paperclip Nazis that we imported that uh, were flown out of East Germany, out of Berlin, the same airplanes that conducted the Berlin airlift, the life-saving airlift with food and coal and oil and clothes for the Berliners, they weren't going back empty. They were being filled up with paperclip Nazis. So after the war... Clay Shaw became an agent for the CIA, for the company, right? That's what they call it, the company. And the company established multifarious fronts, business operations, which were covers for central intelligence operations. Uh, I'll I'll backtrack a little bit to talk about central intelligence. Why it's not called that is that the Germans balked in the contract that Reinhard Galen signed with the United States Army, unbeknownst to President Truman. It was already, it was presented to him as a fait accompli. It says, we must be funded by funds that do not appear in the congressional record. And it is understood that if the interests of Germany and the United States should diverge, our loyalty is first to Germany. We do not work for the Americans, we work with the Americans. If we were to work for the Americans, we would be looked upon as quizlings. People don't know what quizlings Yeah, Joseph Farrell has gone into a great depth on this over the years. Right, right. So that, um, that is why it's not called a Central Intelligence Agency, and it's not a United States agency. 
and that's why they have all of this uh, skullduggery surrounding it. Now, back to Clay Shaw, this is the part that I, I want to share with Barbara. There was a company called Permandex, which was an international uh, commercial organization. And it was centered in Italy, but it had trademarks all around the world. The trademarks in New Orleans, the trademark in Dallas to which President Kennedy was uh, rolling to give a speech that would have changed the history of the world. <clears throat> it was in order to stop that speech from being delivered that President Kennedy was assassinated. Now, this company, Permindex, for which Clay Shaw worked, was associated with a greater organization that had its headquarters in Italy. And that organization was called Centro Commerciale Mondiale, World Trade Center. The World Trade Center was a capstone on a project that began with the assassination of President Kennedy, which was to create a one world order, a one world economic system, and to demolish all the other economies of the world. And so that is why the World Trade Center was chosen as a target, because it symbolized something that was both psychological and economic. And this is written up in the Chinese uh, war manual called Unrestricted Warfare. And if you go to about page 150 of Unrestricted Warfare, you'll read how these two Chinese colonels said and wrote in 1998 and 99 that they should engage in all-out war, unrestricted war with the United States using broadband warfare, a new strategy and that it would be advisable to target a, an important target within the United States that was both economic and psychological. And they chose the World Trade Center as that symbol of America's might, America's financial power. Whoever's and, typing, please mute. No, well, it's not me. I'm just talking. <laughs> so, the, the point is, in this same manual, Unrestricted Warfare, which I will give, I'll give to you, Barbara. I've shared it with Richard and many others here. They cite the use of a third-party organization in order to pull this off, and they actually named the Bin Laden Group. So the World Trade Center is a bookend. The World Trade Center attack is a bookend to the JFK assassination. And it shows that there are many, many players involved globally between many factions who are all vying for that ever-elusive world conquest, world domination. And so many nations have gone down the drain in, in pursuit of that, most notably, well, Germany, Nazi Germany was one, Stalinist Russia was another. And I'm afraid that we're in decline because of the same mistake. I don't think anybody is ever going to conquer the world or rule from one capital. So um, I agree with Rich Schecht, and that is why I was disappointed by Donald Trump in not 
opening the files and releasing them completely. Well, as long as the lawyers say we've opened the door, which you definitely have, then I need to ask you the $64 trillion question. What does he plan to do with all these documents? Well, we don't know what the documents were. I do suspect that he may have been holding them or look, the man was president of the United States. The man had the power to declassify any document in the United States archives. But that's not what the law reads. He hasn't transgressed classification. He's transgressed having them, period, in his well, possession. Obama, Obama took off with their No, he did not. That's a total fabrication. There are no there are ways to go through the process. Robert Robert every time you make an assessment, it sounds it's like the pronouncement from on high. It's it's false information. Obama followed the law. Just go check the sources. Trump did not. Trump followed the law. No, he did not. He declassified. It had nothing to do with classification. All right, well let's talk about the subject of what is potentially in them and what is so terrible that the world cannot know. I have my suspicions. Yeah, I'd like to know what you think yeah. about that. I think there's a, there's a terrible thing that the world must not know is that the aliens have been claiming since the 1940s that they genetically engineered Jesus Christ. And this was something that William Cooper was the first to bring to our attention. And that would bother me. That wouldn't bother you? See, I no. think it's even deeper, Robert. It's they claim to have created the human race, that they are God. That's, that's the unthinkable right. for but, most but people. The God of the human, one of the major gods of the human race is Jesus Christ. And no, it's not. He's the son of God. Let's not get you know picky here, but you know the, the God the Father, God the Son, okay, God the Holy Ghost. Let's get picky. You were raised a Catholic. I was raised a Catholic. The Son of God is one with God. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. There are three persons in the Godhead: the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And unfortunately, they changed the name of the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit, in 1961, which really changes our perception of that entity. A ghost is a person. So no, a ghost the... is a deceased person. Ah, well what died and made this universe come true? Now, now I, I have something to add here. Good. I'm not a Catholic. I'm highly spiritual. I'm highly guided. Mm-hmm. Highly successful when I follow my guidance. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, you don't need to – it may be that that there is a fundamental Catholic mentality, a Catholic belief system behind the these uh, the people who are keeping the secrets of the CIA. There was there was a, an, a very interesting lunch I had one day um, with um, David McMichael, who co-founded Veterans Intelligence Professionals for Sanity in D.C. Mm-hmm. VIPS is the acronym with Ray McGovern, uh, and we were having lunch, and um, he, he, he. I, I think I just 
I think we were talking about the Dulles brothers the day of assassination and mm-hmm. the fact that the Dulles brothers, uh, he claimed were Catholic. Uh, and I said, well, that's interesting. So is, so is Bill Casey. And mm-hmm. of course, there are so many members of the CIA who were Knights of Malta, except yes. reporting directly to the Pope. And then as I thought I was making a joke. Um, as I was, you know, picking up my IC, I said, oh, so CIA stands for Catholic Intelligence Agency. And he said, you're right. Now, he didn't mean that. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, you are right. But to, point, uh, to just comment on what you're saying. Yeah. Um, I hey, hey guys, we're, we're about to run out of time here at the bottom of the hour. So. Okay, I left the Catholic Church scores of years ago. And what I'm saying about religion is that religion is a glue that holds society together no it doesn't it holds part of society and while you and i i would not be bothered in the least by such a revelation there would be a collapse of faith around the world and it's not just Catholics. it's the bottom of the hour okay hold it My guest, Robert Morningstar, Barbara Honiger, and we've got Andrew Curry waiting in the wings with some stunning stuff. We're going to get multidimensional shortly, and then Georgia Lambert is coming in as the cleanup hitter in this uh, quadrifecta on a Sunday night on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Richard C. Hoagland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month. 33 cents a day. Support the broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. Welcome back, everyone, on this Sunday night, soon to be Monday morning here in the land of enchantment. I mean, given the subject matter that we deal with on this show, doing it from uh, more than arts, uh, great American Southwest, doing it from literally uh, 
the land of enchantment. As in a few hours, the human race, if we really get what we deserve, could be on the edge of such enchantment, such openness, such extraordinary possibilities, the ushering in of things that most people cannot even imagine, let alone dream of. So, uh, Robert, I'd like you to kind of wrap up, but then I want to bring Andrew on because Andrew and I have some things that we want to discuss that will lift this to the next level. And I'd like to get back to my imaging timeline, which will grade seamlessly into one of your discoveries vis-a-vis the moon. So let's uh, wrap up James Jesus, Roman Catholic Angleton. Oh, James Jesus Angleton, yeah. The chief spook, (laughs) chief of counterintelligence. Who I bet you dollars to Navy Beans was a Roman Catholic. Oh, yes. I'm pretty sure he was. A very interesting man. Um, He was half Mexican, half Scottish, which the CIA found out in the 1950s that many, many of the contactees that UFOs and abductees that the UFOs were stopping by to visit were people who were admissors of Celtic and Native American bloodlines. Isn't that special? Yes, it is. We found that those people who had those two bloodlines were the most psychically potent. Because it's hyperdimensional tuning. Yeah. It's like radio, HD radio. the The other horrible thing President Trump may have been discussing well, wait, wait, let, me, let me stop you there, because if, 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 if this real truth, the ultimate truth, which is the truth and the secret of all of humanity is in these mm-hmm. files, and he took them, he stole them to use in some fashion, mm-hmm. why would he wait until he was out of office and powerless as opposed to being in the Oval Office behind that desk, the most powerful office on planet Earth, bar none? Richard, those documents were shipped while he was still president of the United States. They were shipped the last week of December, the first week of January, and the next president came in on January 20th. So, so much for that contention. But what I'd like to say... No, you're missing my point. He had four years to have access to these damn documents. Why did he send them to Mar-a-Lago the day before he was leaving, you know, metaphorically? Insurance policy. Why not use them when he was president? Because he was a chicken shit, okay? Well, then how how come he's got courage now? Where the steel in his backbone when he is going to be under such indictment by several facets of this government and God knows how many other governments? Well, I told you yesterday. Without legal protection, without the government behind him that he would control at some level. He's got a lot of people behind him, and I think that it really will look really bad. Who are powerless. Powerless compared to being president. We found out how powerful the presidency was under Trump. Mm -hmm. Richard? Yes? Yeah. Please please let uh, Robert uh, complete by saying what the other terrible secrets... Yeah, the other ter- thank you, Barbara. The other terrible secret is that a certain group of aliens. There are several races of aliens that have been operating on this planet for thousands of years. Some of them are angels, and some of them are quite demonic. And the activities in the Hall of Hell at Dulce Base, the agreement that the United States government 
signed with an alien race to exchange technology for quote-unquote human resources that they needed to keep their sickly race going is a horrible thing. Human mutilations, human abductions, human trafficking, all of these things are interrelated with the UFO phenomenon and the UFO cover-up. The whole adrenochrome mystery, the addiction of Hollywood elites to adrenochrome. Where do you get adrenochrome? Well, you get it from human beings. I think these are some just some of the horrors that are part. Robert, sorry to interrupt. Someone is typing. They're not muting. Please stop typing on the air. Thank you. Go ahead. All right. Well, that that is it. It's horrible things. Let me tell you that I I have devoured the Dead Sea Scrolls. Starting in 19... Well, I started studying the Dead Sea Scrolls in 1960 when they were just little snippets and hearing things here and there. But the Israeli government uh, seized them in 1967 and clamped down on them and was not letting them out. And they were giving like three sentences of a particular scrolls to one scholar and two sentences to another scholar. So nobody could ever get the big picture. But finally, in 1994, the archivist at the Huntington uh, Library in California said, there's no reason for this uh, embargo. And what had happened was in the 73 war, they were afraid they might lose the war. So Israel took slides, colored slides of all the scrolls mm. and disseminated them to many libraries and uh, institutions around the world. No single con- point failure. On the condition that they don't release them. Well, this very courageous archivist at uh, Huntington Library decided enough is enough. All of these people are really qualified scholars. And he released them. So in 1996, I picked up a book called The Dead Sea Scrolls Uncovered. Robert Eisen is one of the authors. In that book, I read, and I still read it regularly, that the angels were coming and going from Qumran, to and from Qumran, on chariots of glory. And that there was a sacred precinct within Qumran into which only perfect people could uh, could enter the holy of holies. No one with any physical defects, no one with a mental or emotional defect. Per- people who walked in perfection were the only ones allowed in there. And I came across a very interesting passage, which was purification rites. And these purification rites specifically say, that if an, should an Essene woman come into contact with angel seed on her thighs or on her arms, she had to go through 10 days of ritual purification. Now, those are religious people, but in my vocabulary, as a modern scientist, I would say that what they call purification, we call decontamination. So it is clear to me that Jesus and John Jesus, the son of God, John the Baptist, were the offspring of angels and the seen women. Which can only happen if we follow straight line genetics is if there are the ETs out there, some of them, 
Some of them are part of the human family. Yes, but the family model. But there are others who are not. Yeah, but they would have to use genetic engineering to make their genetic material, DNA, whatever, compatible with humans. And you can do that in a lab. You don't have to, you know, take an Essene woman to bed. Well, not today. (laughs) Not today. But over a period of uh, the eons of time. uh, See, I think this is where the rubber meets the road. I'd like to move on so that we broaden our discussion because there's more evidence. Remember, we got a spacecraft headed for the moon, and I keep asking everybody, why the hell don't you talk about the damn ruins? Uh, The reason... Could I make just one final comment about what you said? Yeah. Okay. For for people like the three of us, and I I can't speak for the other folks. They haven't come on the show yet tonight. Speak for themselves, of course, as always. But for the three of us, We're extremely well-read about the abduction phenomenon, about all of the DNA and genetic testing, and even basically, uh, you know, uh, planting of of the hybrid uh, embryos, taking the embryos out of human women, et cetera. I mean, it's a horrendous, horrendous thing. Uh, If you believe these reports, and I give them credence, um, it's a horrible thing that's happening. However, I personally, it doesn't ring true to me that whatever is in these so-called JFK documents. Remember, we're talking about these documents that are that are classified under the JFK section in the National Archives. Mm. Okay, and, and in certain agencies. I don't think it's about that. And the reason I don't is that this new quote, um, the truth is too terrible from somebody on the inside, allegedly, to a JFK researcher, uh, revealed in today's JFK conference here in Dallas, that the truth is too terrible for the American people ever to be told because they simply could never understand the why. Okay. Now, to me, that doesn't sound, for those who aren't educated about all of these, uh, you know, regressions and abduction phenomenon and all of the DNA uh, hybridization, that kind of thing, and at least the claims about it, um, if you don't already know that, and that were part of those documents, I don't think that that quote would apply, because I believe that we're talking about some some apparently terrible truth, um, that or truths that the public would believe, but simply couldn't accept. Not as not not. Not that they weren't able to accept it as reality, but they simply couldn't accept it ethically, morally, whatever. I just don't think it's about this ET phenomenon. I don't. Um, I think it's something else that is more di- that the public would see as more directly related to the assassination. Hmm. Well, I think I think that the a, a fact that the United States government killed its own president is something that would be unbearable for many, many people to, to take. Except so, most of the public already believes that. Yeah, the numbers are there, Robert. Most people think that Kennedy was killed by a secret yes, cabal in the U.S. government. Yeah, it's, it's taken 30 years to, to break uh, the mind control. But remember, right. going back to Brookings, Barbara, back when NASA was first formed, they had this long-range committee over at Brookings that said, look, if you let out 
that we're not alone. It will destroy civilization. It will destroy humanity. It will destroy the concept of people on earth. It's that world paradigm shattering. And they recommended decades, years, decades, you know, of, of programming, education, acculturization and all that to get people to handle the truth. Well, I understand that as my good friend, the world famous attorney, Daniel Sheehan says so rightly, uh, it's better to be disillusioned than illusioned. Right. <laughs> but that, but to, to see, it's all those, those five stages of grief or whatever. You go through these various stages, and I think what may be part of the equation, and I'm trying to put myself now in the, in the role of the censors. Remember, the biggest thing that governments are, are terrified of is uncertainty and instability. When the wall was coming down and some reporter, you know, asked George Bush, you know, what he thought about it and why he wasn't crowing from the rooftops that the West had won, that democracy had won over communism, he said, we're very concerned with instability. So if you go through these metaphorical versions of the five stages of grief and learning the human race is not alone, that someone has been messing with us from time immemorial, that, you know, hell, we may even be in some hyperdimensional prison and a slave race and a slave sentience to something else that's so far above us that we can never get free, that would not sit well with most political mainstream operations. Look at what happened on far, far meager grounds on January 6th. So this could be the real fear that we're looking at the cataclysmic destruction from within of civilization and civilized interaction among humans, all 8 billion of us, with just ordinary human proclivities and nuclear weapons. Also, well, I think it's going to be more straightforward than that, this terrible secret. Um, but in any case, that's my opinion. Okay, let me bring Andrew on. Because can I just say one last thing, that it could also be the the fall of science, that the, the, the revelation could bring about the end of science and the credibility of science. No, it won't. It'll reinstate what science should be, not dogma, but seeking truth well, would, would, and well, a for, process for figuring the out. The of science would require the destatement of current science, which is atheistic, materialistic, and denies the No, it, it, this is much more complicated than we can solve tonight. So, Andrew... You've been quietly listening, munching on that little bun there, and you, you have thoughts. Yeah. Um, well, on what Barbara – well, actually, I want to start with um, Donald Trump. So it was very interesting that the – you know, he did a lot of – I mean, just to talking about what he knows and what he might say, it was very interesting that he did a lot of build-up towards, well, his eventual announcement that he's um, intending on running for president – uh, again in 2024, but there was a real weird series of things that happened around it. And I mean, one of the things that happened on, I believe, the exact date that he was going to make his announcement was that missile or missiles that you know fell into, well, that were fired into or off track or whatever into Poland, which you know started to clog the news cycles. And apparently, and I heard this on a, a talk show that I had been tuning into, and I can't remember the source now, but both President Obama and President Bush, you know, very different political leanings, we think, were standing by on call 
depending on what he was going to come out and say. And I guess their whole thing was they were going to discuss the issues of misinformation and disinformation. Now, I can't prove that exactly, but I did hear that somewhere. It's just interesting that there seems to be a lot of anxiety around what, like you said, what he knows and what he might have been about to say. Now, on on the other matter, Barbara, when you said, um, you know, what could be so frightening? Well, Richard's kind of been, you know, hinting at it all night long. If we've got ruins, how did they get there? And what made it ruined? I mean, we're talking about 9-11 and the trauma that it delivered to the American people, you know, the, the, the American psyche. And I believe worldwide for many, you know, at least in the Western world. Richard, you, you have talked about this over the years, written about it. Imagine a solar system. What did you say? A thousand Titanics going down. I mean, a war that almost put us on, well, that potentially put humanity or whatever our forebears were, if we go with this model, that's so psychically and spiritually traumatizing. I mean, worse than being blown up by a nuclear bomb and just being evaporated, your soul almost you know, evaporated or annihilated. Maybe it's something even worse. I mean, maybe the trauma of this, if we do with this model again, is so horrific that, Richard, we've discussed this on air, off air in your books, it would just absolutely devastate people. Like there'd be a, a how would you describe it, Richard? I mean, you just could, people may not be able to recover from it. It could be that, that could, again, this idea of the great fall. And then what sort of seeded that? Like what preceded that? I, I mean, Whatever just, it is, Andrew, in my model, it has to be so big, it encompasses everything else. And it's like my grandmother said, when you, when you, when you, you know, uh, uh, knit a shawl, if you don't do it right and you pull on one thread, the whole thing can come apart. I think, Barbara, the the, the tinderbox nature of this is, if you pull on one of these threads, so much will unravel that is not then unstoppable that it ultimately gets to the ultimate secret, which everyone is trying to protect at all costs, up to and including creating incredible diversions and lavishly wasting billions, tens of billions of dollars. Like, what the hell is Elon Musk up to with Twitter when his mission is to take us back to the moon and on to Mars so much more cheaply and availably than NASA has been putting around for decades not doing? Yeah, it's almost like he's being diverted. Yeah. Or it's part of his own diversion because the secret is so damn big, he won't be able to get away with it unless he defocuses attention on his space activities to something people can get their minds around, which is money, 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 and censorship, censorship, and politics, politics, and that will keep them all occupied, while over here, he's building the foundation of the real revolution, which is going to the damn moon and taking real pictures and showing everybody what we really used to be. Well, I'll just, uh, one more sentence, and then we'll move on, and that is... Uh... Uh, look, look to the date, December 15th of next month. That's when all of the JFK records are supposed to be released. Except for these stupid loopholes. Well, we'll see. So the loopholes can go on forever. We'll see. So it's, it's, it's back to my quote in, in the monuments, you know, the, the White Queen, 
jam yesterday, jam tomorrow, but never jam today? Turtles all the way down. <laughs> Andrew, continue, please. Yeah. Um, oh, I just lost my place. I was listening to you guys. Um, well, Richard, you said, and Robert said, and maybe Barbara as well, but before the show, you, you made a comment. It was interesting. We were... Richard tries to wrangle us at the beginning of the show, folks, and sometimes <laughs> it's hard. And he said – he made a very interesting comment, which I think is very salient to the conversation, and that is he said getting our pieces on the Monopoly board or something, and I thought, oh. And now you mention Musk, who is you know, a billionaire and who's an industrialist and who wants to go to Mars, and, and, I, and Robert mentioned you – know, Yeah, but it's not that he wants to go. He has demonstrated that anybody else on the planet, Bezos not included – he can do exactly in that realm what he says he's going to do. He can revolutionize the primitive way of getting off Earth to places where there is overwhelming proof that we have never been alone, that we have this incredible, incredibly turbulent and, and complicated history, and somehow our destiny and future are all tied up and connected, and he's got the way to unirrevocably show humanity that, and instead of doing that, He's mucking around with Twitter. Well, it's an information platform, I mean, whatever. But it's whatever not the only is. one in, in town. Yeah. And when you got when you got the good, you can put it on anything, and people will read it and watch it and buy it and whatever. So, what is Twitter all about? To me, it's an incredibly orchestrated diversion. Because while everybody's focusing on Elon Musk, Twitter, you know, buffoon. They're not paying attention to what the left hand is doing down at Boca Chico in Texas. Yeah, perhaps. But I just want to finish my point. I, I, I really think this is much – I mean Robert said you know, no one's ever going to be able to take over the world, and I think he's right. We're just an unruly bunch. It's going to be so hard for any singular person or thing. Um, but Richard, I think this is much wider. I think we're about ready to launch back into the solar system and I think it's got a lot to do with economics and business. I mean, you remember those stories? Oh, it was a number of years back when they were talking about getting the internet on the moon. You know, it was like, what? Like, yeah. why? You know, like, and, and then even cryptocurrency, like, you know, to me, cryptocurrency, there's something else going there other than, you know, central control or decentralization. Those are all valid things. But, you know, Joseph has, uh, Dr. Farrell has talked about this in the past that, you know, are they trying to create a system that could pay people when they're doing their thing in a solar system? I just think, and this whole rush for um, green energy, you know, like we got to get off the fossil fuels. Like you said, I mean, how are we going to really colonize the, the, the solar system and beyond if we're going to keep using, you know, not primitive um, technology, but technologies that are <laughs> way more expensive and difficult when maybe something more interesting is available. I, I just think this is such a bigger arc, and I just think that, just like you said with the the um, threads coming out of the shawl, how do they shape this narrative? How do they like, – like, again, there's too many ruins, not just on the moon, but everywhere. And, how, and I want to ask you, like, one of my items is this cube set that's going to go and start – well, the article says skimming the surface of the moon looking for water sources. And I thought, well, if they're going to do that, they're going to bump into all kinds of things. I mean, I don't think they meant it was way down low. I mean, I, I think it's on a, a some sort of orbit that's reasonable, um, and, and there were some distances there. But 
Richard, what happens when this stuff comes out? I mean, if we are on the brink of – look, before COVID, one of the parameters for the Olympic Games in Tokyo that the Olympic Committee in Tokyo had told their uh, car manufacturers – this is something I had spoken about years ago before the whole COVID thing – was they wanted a flying car to come into the Tokyo Stadium and light the Olympic torch. Now – of course, that car was probably going to be some sort of drone, right? You know, the spinning. Um, yeah, with helicopter blades, four, six, yeah. eight, whatever. Right, but it would have the visual of a flying car. Well, the Jetsons have arrived. Exactly. So there's this. There's this. It's more than just like, hey, we're trying to show you that we want to do this. It's much bigger than this, and. I, I don't know how to muddle through this because it, it seems like if you say we're not only on the verge of pulling a thread and unraveling a lot of things, we're also on the verge of putting together the Lego blocks and really going forward, you know, really getting to the top of the pinnacle of this thing. So, I, I mean, I, I just think it's uh, – I think it's almost like two different ways. I mean, Georgia probably have a lot to say about this. Like we're, we're, she said this before, you know, when we push out so far, we tend to go in the opposite direction and we stir up a lot of mud down below. And it's and maybe we're trying to find some sort of balance to be able to, you know, go out there and manage the 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 the, the mud <laughs> the mud kick. If up. our history is as extraordinarily phantasmagorical as I think it is, based on the photographic ruins we've seen all the way out to the farthest planet. I mean, look at all those incredibly shattered arcologies all over Pluto. Yeah. You know, look at the, the their ruins on Mercury. Surprise, guys, there's ruins on Mercury. We used to be a solar system-wide type 2 civilization, and then we had the fall, and we're a bunch of pawing, primitive idiots clawing for a few desperate shekels on one tiny ball of dust when the universe is before us in terms of both physicality and consciousness and retaining our birthright or reclaiming it as to what we once were. And no one is paying attention to that except us, which makes me very, very unhappy. And on that note, we are at the uh, top of the hour. So uh, I'm going to pause my guests. That sounds like I have them all on tape. No, I don't. I just hit this little button and they all kind of, Go into stasis, and then I've revived them you know, when we come back. And I tell all of you, we're going to be joined by Georgia Lambert, who's going to take our conversation up to uh, 30,000 or 50,000 feet when we return. This is Richard C. Hogan on a now Monday night, uh, Sunday night, rather, Monday morning. Again, just hours away from Artemis One, powering around the moon with 16 incredible cameras and in the next hour, we're going to lay out what they could find and how you, the audience of The Other Side of Midnight, can play a pivotal role in keeping the entire system honest. We shall return. Midnight.com. 
Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hoagland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. Welcome back, everyone. It's now Monday morning here in the Land of Enchantment. My guests this morning are Rahaniger, Robert Morningstar, Andrew Curry. And joining us now, you know, I really think she does this on purpose. She hangs back, and her class is really over hours ago, but she gets this like two hours of where they're going, and then she has the ability to formulate the idea of how to respond and interject like a like a diamond cutter hitting precisely the grain of the diamond and flawlessly cutting it in two with no wastage, no superfluous whatever. Georgia, welcome to the other side of midnight. Good evening, Richard. <laughs> <laughs> hey, listen, in the spirit of things, let me start by throwing out some weird synchronicities here. Aha, see? My model is proven correct. <laughs> Don't you find it interesting uh, when Robert brought up the character of Clay Shaw? Yes, of course. That the compromised individual in Manchurian Candidate was named Raymond Shaw. Oh, that's true. Isn't that just an odd little thing? Uh, Uh, Georgia, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because... President Kennedy had a lot to do with the making of the Manchurian Candidate, and that was a mind control apparatus massaging yeah. the for the assassination. You you point out that he's called Raymond Shaw, but the incongruous thing for me was that they chose an English actor to play an American Marine in the role of the sniper. And and the name and the name Raymond is a Germanic name that means wise protector. Yeah, but listen to this. This actor, who we thought was British, was not British. He was born in Latvia in the Soviet Union. He became Lawrence Harvey. And in 1996, I reviewed the four major assassination films of the last 50 years. And that was Suddenly, The Manchurian Candidate, Behold the Pale Horse, and The Jackal. And while I was watching that that uh, review of the Manchurian Candidate, 
I had an epiphany. I kept saying to myself since the first day I saw it in the theaters, I went twice in the theaters as a boy, a high school kid, eighth grade actually, to see it. And uh, that was the first time they showed karate to the American public. But why did they use an English actor to play the assassin when they had a thousand Marines actors in, in Hollywood that could play the part? Well, when the titles ran and I saw James Gregory, Angela Lansbury, Frank Sinatra, when his name came up, the letters changed size. And I saw L, capital L, small a, small u, small r, capital E, small n, small c, capital E, and I saw Lee Harvey. Lawrence Harvey's name as Lee Harvey. Holy cow, Robert. Yes, Richard. <laughs> I mean, these, these kinds of synchronicities are really strange. Let me give you a couple others. Uh, you've got on your show notes, Richard, uh, a bunch of stuff about Project Corona, right? Yes. Corona is the constellation Corona Borealis, which is right behind Hercules. It means the crown. Corona means mm-hmm. the crown. But it's a specific crown. It's the crown of a woman. It's the crown of Ariadne, who gave Theseus the ball of yarn that allowed him to find his way out of the labyrinth and away from the hybrid minotaur. And and it's always the crown of this constellation has always been related to the female. In uh, Welsh, This particular crown is also called the Castle of Ariadne. Ariadne is the goddess of the moon, and her castle is called the Castle of the Silver Circle, (laughs) like glass around a crater. Mm -hmm. Uh, But there's more. Um, The town that I live in happens to be named Corona, and its claim to fame is in 1953, it was used as location for many shots from the movie War of the Worlds. Oh, that's right. Oh, my gosh. And, of course, the the, the, the corona that we are familiar with is this crown of light around the moon during a total eclipse. But what no one has known for centuries in looking at eclipses is that when you look at a total solar eclipse – if you understand what you're looking at, the very inner part, where the moon dark black circle ends and the bright light of the corona of the sun, 93 million miles beyond, begins, there's a very definite band which is seen in, in the first photograph ever taken back in the 1800s of a total solar eclipse. This band is brilliantly visible. With digital technology now, it's available in every single image and video that was shot of the 2017 eclipse that went from sea to shining sea all across the country. And will be again in 2024. There's a big national eclipse, again, going from one coast to the other in 2024. Um, that, That circle is the domes backlit by the light of the sun shining through like a annular lens, an incredibly narrow, very tiny on the scale of the moon lens, and it's been visible for thousands of years, and nobody 
until the CIA coined the term for a secret project to spy on the ruins on the moon and called it, in their Emily Dickinson fashion, Project Corona. And also, everybody remembers Roswell, but this town, one town over, was Corona, where supposedly some bodies were found. Yes, another another crash or parts of the same crash. Yeah. So Corona has all kinds of overlays of meaning, but I really like the the castle of the silver circle. I think that's kind that of is nice. exquisite. We've got to we got to borrow that somewhere. Castle of the silver. Well, of course, that's what the ruins on the moon are. Yeah, that's the castle of Arianrud. Arianrud is the Celtic goddess, one of the Celtic goddesses. And the Celts are somehow connected to the family upstairs, and the Tawasa de Danann and all of that. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's, right. Right. It's all part of the same same family, as my grandmother would have said. <clears throat> so, uh, Andrew. Hi. Yeah, <laughs> Richard. I am um, like when I was waiting, or waiting and listening. I um, expanded on something from my imagination, but based on work from Keith Laney uh, from years back on um, a, a particular. Um, uh, what am I say? Crater in can't get my words right here in the southern hemisphere of the moon, and that crater is. Uh, sorry, guys, I'm losing my my mind here. Um, well, anyways, I said when we do get it up, <laughs> it's the forest crater, and um, there's these extraordinary images when you zoom in on on Keith's uh, uh, Gigapan that show what looked to me and to him and to others uh, that, you know, research this stuff, like it very geometric, very elegant in its form. And I did a little expansion on, I did a little um, graphic, uh, you know, short for, for the show years back and I've showed it a couple of times and I'm, I've asked Keith if he could put it up again, but I did a finishing piece tonight. Well, maybe just part of the chapters. And when we, you know, if he's able to get it up, I want to open it up and share it. And, and again, Richard, this is just based on, my imagination looking at what these things could be. And, and again, I, I, I want to come back to what's going to happen when we, like you said, when we start to see this stuff unfold, or is it just going to get edited out like it has been in the past? Well, I don't think it's going to get edited out long-term because this very perspicacious journalist, she was a woman, which I thought was interesting. She was really asking Mike Serafin, who's the, you know, the mission manager for the Artemis thing, and that's when he made an interesting revelation that I was talking to everybody uh, before airtime. In fact, let me uh, let me bring it up here, if I can find where I posted it. Uh, okay, here it is. Here it is. Okay, because he he admitted, and he didn't have to, because she was asking basically, well, are we going to see the 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 uh, the video from these incredible cameras that are going to be taking close up videos of the moon, high def, uh, you know, 4K, color, digital, et cetera, as they sweep around the moon at that low uh, altitude and then back out to the 39,000 miles. Are we going to see all that transmitted live to Earth? And Seraphin, again, the mission manager of Artemis, said no, because the burn takes place on the far side of the moon. And, you know, we can't obviously transmit television signals through the moon. Just like Apollo, you know, and the and the and the timeout period between when Artemis disappears on the left hand side of the moon and then reappears on the right 
is about 34 minutes. They'll be, you know, behind the moon and we won't, you know, see or hear anything because they're, you know, but it's all done by computer control anyway. So it's all automatic. And then when they come out from the right-hand side, the plan is to transmit all the stuff that they recorded in, you know, their terabyte drives on board to transmit it through the DSN down to earth and then transmit it back by a satellite to the whole world so everybody can see it. And she wanted to know, this very perspicacious journalist, will it be edited? Meaning, will someone at NASA have a hand in determining what we see and what we don't see? And that's when Seraphin made a startling, astonishing, amazing, mind-boggling to me revelation. Because he said, well, under the ITAR agreements, and of course everybody's now saying, ITAR, ITAR, what's ITAR? You know, it sounds like some kind of sticky fluid on the sides of pine trees. What's ITAR? ITAR stands for International Traffic in Arms Regulations. It's a set of State Department regulations that apply to the manufacture and transfer of defense products, defense services, and technical data beyond the continental United States of America, beyond the borders of the government-controlled USA. So what what um, uh, uh, what the name said was that they have an ITAR representative from the State Department, more than one, who reviews every single frame of video and still imagery to see if the images contain violations of the ITAR, International Traffic in Arms Regulations, uh, overseas. And I said to myself, what crapola? You mean to tell me that NASA didn't figure out not to put indicting stuff on the surface of the spacecraft and that they might be in the shot and therefore it would give spies from Russia or from Iran or from China or whatever secret information about arms control, international technologies that we're not supposed to share, just like we've been very reticent to share certain weapon systems with you know, Ukraine leading up to this war. And then I realized, no, what he's doing, what Mike Serafin is doing is under the guise of answering her question, he's revealing where the censorship is coming from. In fact, there are other eyes other than NASA that looks at this. And he said, we really would like to be open, but because of these regulations, we can't be. And that means that they're extending the ITAR idea to the moon to whatever would be seen in the videos to be shot in a few hours from now, early tomorrow. Well, actually, it's this morning now, just five but hours. Richard, Go Richard, ahead. Yeah. Isn't one interpretation of that, that without having let us know that this, uh, this spacecraft is armed? I don't think so. No, it, it, to me, it's an excuse. It's a bureaucratic excuse not to give us video without censorship. 
to and me, Richard, to me, it means that they're afraid that they're going to take pictures of weapons on the moon that they don't want to let the rest of the world know. Oh, well, no, no, no. Because the no. idea of something hanging off the spaceship being uh, uh, well, that's the, you are anticipating what I said to Steve Bassett because <clears throat> I said, what if in the motif of the Tic Tacs appearing over the Nimitz fleet or over the Teddy Roosevelt battle group on the on the East Coast? What if our ET friends decide to basically make their presence known in this stunning video as the spacecraft slashes around the moon at the highest velocity before it goes out of that extended orbit, and that all is beamed to Earth on the video where, if everybody's watching, they couldn't ignore what's on the video. In fact, one of the plans that NASA's published is they want to duplicate the Apollo 8 Earthrise over the horizon of the moonshot that was shot on film. And then obviously we didn't see it until the spacecraft came back to Earth and it went through the labs in Houston and then was made up into prints and disseminated to various media. Now, live HD 4K color television, digital television of Earthrise as as Orion comes around the moon, can be beamed in real time to the Earth. So everybody can see the Earth rise live as it's rising at the spacecraft and can see what we look like in full color, zoomed in, filling the frame and all that. The problem is the glass domes are going to be in the way. There's no way I've got video, I've got stills taken by other spacecraft showing these bands of glass across the Earth as seen from the moon. And it's on Chinese imagery taken by the satellites they have in orbit around the moon. And that they've taken and made public and not talked about. Commentary, no announcements, no nothing. They just posted it. And you have to know what you're looking at to know what you're looking at. So well, those are some of your items, Richard. You exactly, exactly. So let's go back to my items. Thank you. That was very nicely done. So click on my name under the banner on the guest page, and then you scroll down to items number seven, eight, and nine. Seven is a comparison between the CIA imagery of the domes in Project Corona shot across space with a telescopic lens system in the 1960s and you can see that bright glittering edge to the moon that's the dome and then on the right the color image is a thermal infrared image taken in 2009 by a nasa satellite called lacrosse and what you see is that brilliant yellow curving line above the surface the red surface on the on the right hand edge which is a color version of the medium temperature of the remaining glass, you know, cosmically shattered glass by trillions of meteor strikes over millions of years that is still there, but has a sentient or sensible amount of heat because it isn't zero. There's still material there. Then you go down to number eight. This is one of those Chinese Lanzhong images taken from their satellite that they placed in orbit so they could communicate around the curve of the moon with their spacecraft. They landed on the far side. And you can see here, if you blow it up, just click on it, it gets very big. You will see 
this incredible glittering glass set of structures all across the surface. You can see the edges at the, at the lunar limb uh, where the glass dome is seen in tangent, and then you see noise above that. We should see that on the color video, and it should sparkle because as you move laterally at you know several kilometers per second at 60 miles altitude, it's going to change parallax, change perspective, so all the sun glints, all the rainbows, all the the little images of the sun that are refracting in the glass will be seen in an animated video form, and no one will be able to ignore it because it will be blatantly right in your face unless NASA doesn't let us see it under the, quote, ITAR censorship regulations. Number nine, this is uh, kind of my imagining of what the geometry in close-up might look like. It's a very complex uh, hive-like geometric uh, uh, honeycomb. Uh, the nearest analog I could find was one of Hollywood's creations, the Fortress of Superman at the North Pole in one of the many Superman films. And you'll notice what's inside his fortress. See the pyramids there? <clears throat> I think that's a kind of a Hollywood hint to us. Number 10 is a color photograph on the left taken by the LaCrosse uh, spacecraft in 2009. The right inset enlarged shows that even in the shadows, in the so-called permanent shadows, where there's no sun, no light, no anything, there is some kind of illumination which has colors, prismatic colors, because the sunlight is, is coming across the picture at 90 degrees to our field of view, and it's being uh, differentially refracted like a rainbow. And that's also what we could see on these videos if they're, if they're halfway decent with us and honest with us and show us what the cameras are recording sometime later this morning, which takes us to number 11. Because number 11 is now from lacrosse showing a close-up this geometry, this incredible cross-hatch geometry, and again, click on the pictures, they get much bigger. That cross-hatch geometry, you can see in all these dark areas, those are permanently shadowed areas. The bright white areas are overexposed uh, based on the uh, latitude characteristics of the cameras that LaCrosse uh, carried. But look at the cross-hatch geometry, the structural elements in the right-hand panel of the domes, and again, these incredible cameras on Orion, on Artemis One, should show us all of this, provided they don't suddenly say, oh, we had a technical problem and we can't show you anything. Number 12, this is a black and white taken in, during Apollo on Apollo 10 uh, of uh, Sinus Medi, which is the uh, central region of the visible moon. And this is a tangent view looking obliquely to the side of the horizon. Look at all that glass sticking up above the surface. Look at the shadows and how they're not pitch black. There's actually light geometry in all the shadows because you're looking through the sunlit domes into every shadow. There is something between you and the surface and the, you and the spacecraft. So all of this should be visible. And finally, items 13, 14, and 15 and 16 are related. Several years ago, at least a couple years, 
um, Robert and I independently saw the same photograph published first in, I think, a Polish magazine, then in Time magazine, and I traced it that back down to the actual website on the, on the NASA uh, HQ website, which is number 16. This is a stunning color image of the moon, which shows around the limb, the edge, this brilliant blue glass geometric structure that should not be there and is not there presently under any way that you can move filters or change focal lengths or change size of lenses. Look particularly at 15, the comparison between the blue scattering of the Earth's atmosphere, as seen at about 100,000 feet, with this incredible blue horizon on the moon, which would imply the moon has an atmosphere, and it does not. But what is blue on the moon, and used to be much bluer and much denser, because it was much less eroded, was the domes. I call this NASA's time capsule image of an ancient moon millions of years ago that has now been shown to us in a NASA lie on this government NASA website, which claims it was photographed by some amateur in Texas. And I guarantee you, he never, ever, ever took this picture of the moon from the Earth. His name is supposed to be uh, Thomas Campbell. If he took this picture, then he should be president of the United States, and he never will be. So what I think they really did is they brought this picture back from some archive they found on the moon, maybe even Data's head. Remember the robot head in Shorty Crater there on Apollo 17? If they brought that artifact back and they figured out after 40 years how to talk to it and download its images, it may have contained a library of images of the moon millions of years old, which would look like what you see in those photographs and certainly never like the moon we're going to see in a few hours uh, this morning. Uh, if, again, the system is honest and NASA can be held to tell us the truth. I would like to go back to the Chinese picture and point out to you that there is a huge UFO in the picture above the moon. It cannot be part of the spacecraft that's taking the picture. And uh, it's a perfect example. Well, you, you, you mean right, right in the top center? Yeah. That's the Earth. That's, that's the Earth. That's the crescent Earth, yes. Remember, this was taken from the far side looking at the Earth because oh. the satellite, the satellite is able to broadcast from the Earth to the far side and back to the Earth so they get real-time data from the oh. uh, Chang-4 uh, and 5 uh, spacecraft. That's the Earth. That's the crescent Earth. Well, since I brought up the Chinese, I'd like to relate to you uh, the origins of Tai Chi Chuan came from the moon. When I first saw Tai Chi for the very first time back in 1972, my first impression was, my God, that looks like it came from outer space. So I became uh, dedicated to it. I was recruited by the masters and masters in New York. And then I dedicated myself to researching its origins. And in 1978, I found a poem called The Spin Dance Girl, which related the existence of historic characters are 
recorded in the names of the Taishi forms. One of them is the golden cock stands on one leg, the fair lady weaves at shuttles. These are personages that lived in the Tang dynasty. So I began researching the identities and histories of these people, including the last Tang emperor, Xuan Sung, the mysterious ancestor. And I came across a Tang dynasty historical record where the emperor said that a moon ship came down one night and landed on the uh, parapet of his castle in Xi'an. That's where the 10,000 terracotta soldiers were found uh-huh. there in He said that the moon people came out of the ship and invited him to go to heaven with them to Panglai Shan, which is like you might say the island in the sky, uh, fairyland. And he accepted. And he described taking off, being lifted off in the moonship, leaving Xi'an and seeing the, the village, uh, the tent village that grew around outside the walls of the castle, and going to the moon where he was entertained by the moon people who danced a beautiful dance and he played some beautiful celestial music. And he said he saw fairies dancing in resplendent rainbow-colored garments. And when he came back the next day, he got off the ship. He said to his wife, listen, you have to learn this dance. I just saw it. The moon people showed me this dance. And I'm going to write down the music. And he wrote down the music. And it's called The Lost Rainbow Air. Because it was lost for a thousand years. Right. Hey, we're at the bottom of the hour. We're at the bottom of the hour. Anyway, that's where Tai Chi came from. Fantastic. My guests this morning, too numerous to mention. We'll mention them when we come back. We have one and a half hour to go. If you want to join the conversation, I will give out numbers. Andrew's been busy. There's a couple of sketches that I'm hoping Keith is able to put up, one of which is based on this photograph. And I guarantee this is not a contemporary photograph of the moon. It is the moon as it existed with the domes far less shattered millions of years ago. We shall return. Midnight.com. Talk radio with pictures on demand. Liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and nonlinearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, $0.33 cents a day. Talk radio with pictures on demand. The other side of midnight.com.
And welcome back, everyone. Last half hour to go on this Sunday night, Monday morning edition of The Other Side of Midnight. We're within hours now. That's four hours and change, I think, of the powered flyby on the far side of the moon. Spacecraft comes around and is supposed to beam us extraordinary video from extraordinary technology, which, if the system is honest, could show us extraordinary things. Okay, uh, let me give out the number, 917-889-8802, if you want to join the conversation. That's 917-889-8802. And we do have some people on the line, so with everyone's permission, I'm going to flip the switch here, and I'm going to call up this caller, area 530. Please tell us your name and sign in, please. Yes, uh, this is uh, Sean calling uh, from Sacramento. Hi, Sean. What I'd like to do is maybe uh, try and tie this all together, if I could, real quick, uh, by talking about uh, known knowns, uh, according to uh, Donald Rumsfeld. I was going to say, I'm hearing Rumsfeld echoes. (laughs) The reason why we know about uh, the idea of flying saucers was back in 1947 uh, with uh, Fred Crisman and uh, Harold Dahl. Uh, And that was a... uh, a UFO uh, incident that happened in Puget Sound where they saw six uh, flying saucers back in 1947. And the uh, the principal FBI investigator on that was um, Guy Bannister. Guy Bannister ends up retiring and ends up um, becoming a part of the JFK uh, assassination um, investigation with Jim Garrison. Uh, he ends up having an office within that building. It's called the Newman Building in, uh, in New Orleans. Yeah, you're breaking uh, up terribly. Is there something you can do for your signal? Fortunately, I'm on a cell phone. Yeah, that's probably – you may have to stand on one leg. <laughs> Go ahead. Aunt, would we lose him? Hello? I don't like cell phones. Okay, um, Robert, is, Robert, go ahead. He is joint. He brought up two names that are very important: Guy Bannister, yeah, who was Oswald's handler down in uh, New Orleans. But he mentioned Fred Christman, and Fred Christman was part of the assassination team. They were both uh, well. Christman worked for the CIA, and Christman has the distinction of having been with the OSS during World War II. And he is the one who tells the story about the encounter of OSS and Lord, ba- Lord Mountbatten's army in Burma in a nest of aliens where they had to go in and clean out the nest. And I like to describe it as the first battle between lasers and hot lead and that hot lead won. But Fred Christman is a very interesting man. He was involved in the JFK assassination intimately. And this gentleman has just put... See, this is so weird because we're on a planet now of 8 billion people. Back when when all this was going down, it was 6 billion, but that's a lot of billions. And we've got the same name showing up in totally, totally, apparently unconnected, separated institutional action plans. That boggles the mind because it says to me that the group of suppressors 
is very limited, and they're really stretched thin. Yeah. Well, I'd like to thank the caller for calling in and uh, bringing a very important uh, element uh, to the Wait, table. He might be back. Are you well, back? I would, I, would, I would also like to mention that uh, Sterling ended up writing the movie Seven Days in May. And at that time, Roswell was not a part of the zeitgeist. It wasn't until 1980 that right, Dan right. Friedman brought Roswell out to the public. And so that has no meaning as far as being on a board in the background uh, of that movie, like it does to us now. That didn't have a meaning back then. It did so, to someone. Yeah, I think. Well, you're talking about Twilight. Yeah, they, I think it lends further credence to that idea. But it is yeah. interesting that Rod Sterling's next movie is Planet of the Apes. Now, Planet of the Apes, plants, uh, the zeitgeist idea that a uh, a current civilization uh, that's of a lower form is built upon a higher civilization that's beneath its feet. Mm-hmm. Very good, very good. That happened in a very famous scene at the very end of that movie, and that was the first time that we were... You know, Charlton Heston, idea. when he sees the Statue of Liberty, and he says, Damn you to hell! You did it! Oh, wonderful yeah. scene. I, I would always what I want to say that, um, he's talking about the Twilight Zone and the leaking of the Roswell incident. Perhaps. No, 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 no. This was a scene. It was, it was, I think, it was background in Seven Days in May. There's an aerial shot of Roswell or a map or something, and it's right out of it. There's no connection. I don't think that's what this gentleman's talking yeah, about. Yeah, it's written on a, a, a dry Roswell is written behind Burt Lancaster. He's talking about, uh, you know, the uh, the coup. Oh, I thought you mentioned Rod Serling, but this no, no. Rod Serling wrote the script for Seven Days in May. Oh, I see. Yeah, yeah, but the CBS yeah. was a front, a front for CIA, and they were leaking tremendous things through the Twilight Zone. So it was just a funnel. Of, I, uh, I also want to mention with Andrew the idea of flying cars. Uh, that comes from uh, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, written by oh. Ian Fleming. <laughs> Fred oh, McMurray. Fred McMurray. James Bond, yes, you're right. Yes, yes, yes. Yes. And, you know, most of those movies end up uh, involving James Bond investigating a uh, um, money laundering that happens in the Caribbean that somehow is tied to all of this. And, uh, you know, we're kind of going through something right now with the uh, FTX uh, and the, uh, the money laundering in the Caribbean and all that kind of stuff. But getting back to the money laundering back then, it was Cuba that was the place that was being money laundered. Yep. You know, which is why Roswell, uh, getting back to uh, um, uh, uh, Oswald, you know, passing out leaflets with regards to anti-Cuba. And the idea of uh, uh, ruins on the backside of the moon. Uh, that comes from Disney and Werner von Braun, uh, their yes. partnership when they were educating the American public about the Apollo program and the, uh, the many little movies that they ended up doing. Uh, there's a scene where the astronauts are looking at the... Uh, yeah, we've talked about the, it many uh, times on this show, yes. But it's never mentioned in the script. It's just like a throwaway image seen out the window, and they, they light it up with a flare as they come around the curve of the moon, and you see this obvious geometric base but it's never referenced in the film it's just there and then it goes away by the way the character and, 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 show around there is a chinese okay. character that means yeah. king uh caller your 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 signal is so bad you're breaking up so bad that you have very important stuff to say but you got to get off a damn cell phone to say it okay uh andrew i would like to go to you and i'd like to talk about 
the the newest stuff that you have created, which I'm hoping Keith is going to post, because apparently, unbeknownst to me, you literally um, did a sketch from this color shot, what I call the time capsule image of the ruins around Clavius at the, near the South Pole of the Moon. And it's stunning. I mean, you can see they're skyscrapers. Yeah, I, I actually, I think I did it back in, what was it? It says 2018. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I never gave it to you because I oh! wasn't happy. <laughs> wasn't happy. Well, people, so Keith, if you can Well, you need to make it in color. You need to put make a color version. That's all because it's the prismatics, the yeah. geometry and the prismatics. The point is that that's not there now. I've got a side-by-side comparison I'm using on other shows showing Clavius as we see it on the moon, Clavius that we see in this shot. And they're totally different, which is how I know it's a time capsule image. And the only way, there's only two ways it could have come to us. Well, maybe three. One is ancient, ancient, ancient library archives that NASA, because of its secret society permutation and connections, has had access to from the beginning, okay? An ancient, ancient library somewhere on Earth. Number two Bonafide current extraterrestrials who basically say, hey, take a look at this. This is what you used to be. Read it and weep. Number three that we picked up during Apollo, literally the astronauts on Apollo 17 picked up Shorty's head, brought it home from Shorty Crater, Data's head, that robot there with the red stripe on the chin, which looks like some kind of ID mark. You know, the red guys do this, and the blue stripe guys do this, and the green stripe guys. In other words, it was kind of a class or a, a military ranking or, uh, you know, robotic service function uh, demarcation. And they found out how to decode the data. In other words, download the computer in the in the Android. And they eventually came out with these images taken somewhere between Earth and Moon, of the Moon much, much younger than we see it now by millions of years when the dome was much newer. One of those three. But it's not a contemporary image. Robert, would you agree? Did we lose Robert? No. There you are. I don't think it's necessary to push it back millions of years. Um, I'll have to say this. I was dubious of your corona photograph theory until I saw this photograph. And just tonight in studying your corona uh, image, I found, see, I describe a, a defect in that, um, in that ring of blue glass around the moon. I call it a missing tooth down in the southern hemisphere. And I just saw that the corona image that you have shows a similar gap. Uh, okay. Yeah, of course. So I, I do. I do believe that uh, there may be more than to, to the theory than uh, would or uh, meet the eye. <laughs> yes, let me see. The, uh, yeah, there's a gap. Um, if you look at it's 2022. We've been talking about this since 2018. It's only taken you four years. Okay. I don't know. When I came on with this picture, I said it was. I was bringing it on because it gave credence to your theory. I was dubious of it until I saw this and saw that ring of blue. But in the bottom, if you look at the Terminator, go down to what we would call the South Pole and move up uh, a couple of degrees, you'll see a break in 
Yeah, I know the one. I know exactly the one you you mean. That's only part of a much bigger picture. In other words, uh, the spires, those tall skyscraper things that Andrew has done sketches of that are visible in color there on that photo, they do not exist on the current moon. You can't find them. If you can, we'll please show me. Artemis gets there. What? We'll find out after Artemis gets there if they decide to show. Well, you know, guys. Yeah, but those are on the South Pole. Oh, sorry, Andrew. On the South Pole sorry. of the visible side of the moon, the powered flyby that's going to happen in a few hours with Artemis is on the moon's equator on the far side coming around the curve to where they're going to see Earth rise. And they really, yeah. really want to get that in the video. If they get yeah. that in the video, they get all the damn domes in between and all the shading and all the glittering prisms and all the rainbows. And they're all moving because they're moving like a bat out of hell. And the parallax changes will be obvious and it's going to freak everybody out. And they're going to have to either say, okay, here it is. Or they're going to come up with some incredible excuse for why, oh, we couldn't bring you the video because it got lost on the backside of it. I mean, something stupid, something yeah. absurd. Well, I think that's what the ITAR excuse is. Uh, they're going to screen uh, the, the video, and then they're going to take out anything they don't want us to see. But that means they have to take out everything. They have to take out everything that the Chinese have shown us. That's what's interesting because all you have to do is compare two sets of images, the Chinese data and U.S. data. And if the U.S. data is not the same, then somebody's lying. I would say the Chinese. And I would say you're wrong. Stop the prejudice against the damn Chinese. They've been telling us they've been telling us the truth like Emily Dickinson all along. They just haven't said they've been telling us the truth. Uh, they didn't tell us the truth on Mars. They doctored a lot of their pictures there. I don't agree. And I have a lot of prejudice and a lot of them are very helpful. Yes, you do. do. Prejudice I'm is not kidding. science. Okay, Georgia, you're being incredibly quiet, which means you're thinking, you're plotting. <laughs> no. Um, you know, earlier you were talking about why the uh, documents haven't been released at these points. And, you know, esoterically, in the theosophical literature, the moon is regarded as a failed experiment. That's exactly what it's called. And the idea, uh, one of the ideas is that um, the bigger family out there, as Robert was saying, uh, has good guys and bad guys as far as interaction with us is concerned. And that for a very long period of time, the ones in charge here on planet Earth have not been the ones that are nice to us, but that the Earth is on the verge of a new paradigm shift in frequency, and they won't be able to be here anymore. And we're now in a in a period where they are vacating and there's a bigger regime change going on and that the disclosure won't happen until the regime change takes place and it's safe to talk about the stuff because the ones that are coming in are kinder to us. I would I'm, like to clarify that my prejudice vis-a-vis uh, uh, Chinese is my prejudice is against communist Chinese. I love the Chinese people. I owe my career uh, to Chinese people, specifically 
non-communists and Taiwanese people. So God bless them all, and I'm on your side. So that's my prejudice, is communism in general, and communist Chinese in particular. The, the other thing I'd just like to, to drop in really, really fast is that, you know, we forget because we are so egocentric here in the West that indigenous people all over the planet know about star people as part of their history. Yeah. The Hindus talk about ancient wars in heaven with Vimanas, and it's all part of their history. The only people that are going to have trouble with the bigger family is the Catholic or Christian fundamental West. I don't think so. I don't, I don't think the Catholics are going to have any trouble with people from outer space, honestly. You know what was really interesting? The Brookings Institute labeled the Buddhists uh, as a sample of people. Oh, who they, were, they were terrified the Buddhists were going to do something yeah, terrible. Buddhists, Buddhists have so many icons of otherworldly beings. I said, that's when I knew that uh, the Brookings uh, paper was full of crap. We obviously didn't know anything about the Buddhists. Because they didn't talk about Catholics, you know, being upset about uh, the revelation of extraterrestrial life. <laughs> they, they zeroed in on the Buddhists, which was the most ludicrous idea uh, in the whole paper. Absolutely. In, in fact, in esoteric literature, it said that the Buddha, as a, as a consciousness, was the last of what they call the moon chain of consciousness, as the Christ was the first of Earth's humanity to achieve that level of spirituality, and therefore the Buddha and the Christ are esoterically brothers. The end of one chain and the beginning of the next. Well, guys, it's funny you should say Buddha because if you look at I, Keith did this, and I want to really I'll take like a minute. If you look, oh, at you my can numbers, take longer. <laughs> well, if you I, I so this is that little graphic piece that I had done for the show, Richard, and it seems to be evolving. I'm just going to keep adding as we move along. And it's in my items um, from number four, five, six, and seven. The new one is number seven, but if you could just quickly go to number six. Um, this is something I've showed before. So again, it's a little bit of a graphic novel, very imaginative, but it's based on the corner image. Uh, again, this is from DeForest Kelly, or DeForest Kelly, DeForest Crater. <laughs> I'm a Star Trek right now. Um, <laughs> And these, these very strange forms that are in this um, southern hemisphere crater. And it really, to me, looks, looks like one of these Buddhist temples. And it, I compared it to one in Thailand. And if you look at my number six, I put it side by side. Now, we pull out of that. I did a, a, a sketch tonight early in the show, my number seven. And I, and I imagined you know, uh, astronauts on the moon, as a, a continuation of this graphic story, approaching this form and people can enjoy that and take of it what you will. But Richard, we, in your historical moon picture, that Corona um, image, I'm seeing forms like this, even in its, in its sort of, you know, hazy form, I'm seeing forms like this, these incredible spires, these, um, these elegant forms. And um, yeah, I think we're going to see it soon. Guys. Are you talking about, about the color, what I call the time capsule image? Yeah. Yeah, well, I that that was not taken by the CIA. That was that was either I gave you three ideas. It was either right. leaked to us from ETs, NASA as part of a, a secret society lineage had it in some ancient ancient archive already, just kind of ready to post when it was time, or 
it's a it's a downloaded version from one of the robots they found on the moon as part of Apollo and brought home and after 40 some years figured out how to download the data but it's not a contemporary moon it's right. it's got to be millions of years uh older uh than the or or younger rather uh you know going back in time because of the rate of erosion those huge spires which are miles tall are not anywhere in any contemporary image taken anywhere of Clavius that we can see. And isn't it interesting that Clavius is ringed by them on this on this image, this time capsule image, and Clavius was where, of course, Arthur and Stanley put the Tycho Anomaly One buried on the moon. Yeah, exactly. that was that was the moon base headquarters for launching the exploration of TMA One. Well, I'm seeing very similar forms again, Richard, in that wherever that, that image came from, it, very similar to what I'm seeing in at least DeForest Crater in, in my imaginative little story. Yeah, here. well, see, there are different architectural epics represented in all the photography we have of the moon, from orbit, from Earth, from the CIA, from the surface, from Apollo, from the Japanese, from the Chinese. Um, and they represent different phases of architecture. There's stuff on the surface that are like buildings that we can appreciate like this stuff, okay? But then there's this overarching multi-layered dome that obviously was constructed by some super technological civilization that we can't even imagine how they did it. And I don't think that's even as old as the moon itself, which came from another extraterrestrial super civilization and was brought here and placed into orbit. Why? Because without the moon, life on Earth wouldn't be nothing but pond scum. The hyperdimensional gate that was opened by adding the moon to the Earth-Moon system created the Precambrian explosion uh, 640 million years ago, which no science can currently explain, although they keep trying. You know, like you know, I'm being metaphorical now. One day you've got pond scum. The next day you've got dinosaurs. And it's like nothing changed except they added somebody added the moon. So was the moon, did it come ready made? Was it borrowed? Was it stolen from some other star system and some other uh, technological civilization and history of which we, the human race, have no part? See, the reason, guys that I have been focusing for the last 40-some years on ruins is because I don't trust UFOs. I don't trust people who fly UFOs. I don't trust people who represent themselves as being from UFOs. In other words, all people lie. Even aliens lie. But ruins don't lie. If you can back-engineer the ruins from basic science and you can find the libraries and enough of them, you can put together the real history or Barbara Herstory, and you can figure it out without having to believe one damn alien saying one damn lie. May I make a final statement? Oh, sure. We got four minutes. Yes, I know. <laughs> I would like to call upon the spirit of John Fitzgerald Kennedy to assist us in on December 15th or before December 15th that all of the files 
that will tell us what really happened to you. Be released. Amen. Mm. And Richard, I'd like to wish wish all of you uh, happy Thanksgiving. Oh, thank you, Andrew. Thank you. Okay, we do have four minutes, so I'd like to take, and anybody can join in if they want to. We have a worldwide audience that's very unique. And all of you tonight listening to the show have a role to play in what's going to happen in the next few hours. On the homepage of The Other Side of Midnight, there is a direct link to NASA, to NASA television. If you don't have NASA television on your local satellite or cable show, you do have access now through that link to whatever NASA over the next several days is going to broadcast from those cameras on the Artemis mission. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to record everything transmitted through that channel, all of it. And then if you find anomalies or interesting things, make copies and send them to us at the website you know, which is carefully listed. That is your mission because enough independent eyes and independent recorders and independent citizen investigators, just like Robert is a civilian imaging analyst, enough independent folks looking at this and they will not be able to forever continue lying. There are far more of us than there are of them. So, Richard, which which number is the link that you're referring to? Just go to the other side of midnight, the homepage. Right there at the top of the page is a direct link. It's it's playing ninety right seconds. Thank you, dear. Okay. It's, it's playing live, twenty four seven. So just start recording it digitally, you know, on disk, on terabyte drives, on whatever, and you will catch something interesting regardless of what they try to do. And remember, you can then file Freedom of Information Acts and demand the actual video, all right? So you need to do that. You need to stay abreast of what's going on, and you need to be vigilant. And remember what Thomas, uh, no, it was, it was Ben Franklin, who said that we only have a republic if we can keep it. Well, the way you keep it this morning is record NASA TV. And with that, we reached the end of the program. I can't tell you what we're going to do next week because it's not yet written. But it's in the writing right now somewhere behind the scenes, depending on maybe what you out there can do. So until next week, remember, third star on the left, straight on till morning. Good night, everyone. And for God's sake, watch the moon. Oh.